looky here. If it ain't the competition. I've had it up to here with all this tongue wagging about the top guns at Midas. Here, String Bean. I've heard how fast you are. Now let's see how good you are. Satisfied? All right, so you're good. Those are guarantee. But I'm warning you, Jesse, I'm going to tell every fast gun in this town where to find you. Wish you would. It's kind of lonely at the top. The drum slowly she carry me along cause I'm an old cowboy and I know I've done wrong I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande yeehaw <laughs> good afternoon ladies and gentlemen <laughs> this is the old Blake and Dion Show, Saturday Night Movie Sleepover, sponsored by Mother's Best. Remember, when you want flour, Mother's Best. Now let's get right down to what we got here with us, Jay Blake. Jay Blake, how you doing? Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We almost didn't have it because we had that flood over there in Missouri County. Woo! The, uh... I don't know. <laughs> Just kept on going. I don't want to... I was going to start talking about, you know... Hog showdowns and you were about you were whipping some the auction. Hog, the ho- oh, you were <laughs> you lost a lot of those steer on that auction there. Oh, but the old buttermilk stage that it just didn't you almost missed it. And then coming over fair. county fair, county fairs. We don't get a lot of county fairs anymore. I remember going to some county fairs, but they were more like the Italian festival or you know some county fairs. Italian the Italian festivals. Um, but I guess, you know, the more rural you go out west, you get a lot of county they have, fairs. They had one up in the uh, Albany-ish area. Yeah. You know, outside the city. Some places get pretty rural up there. Sure. Outside of Albany. So yeah. There used to be a county fair that I used to go to sometime with uh, some friends. Good times. Yeah, we had a county fair a couple towns over that was, you know, in the woods. It was nice. It's always... It's fun when you're little, but then, you know, I get little, you know, it's like a, it turns into a Twilight Zone episode. Or Tales I know. I, got, you know? I, I'm the tw- I was, was a kid. I was notorious for getting lost. In, at the fair? Yeah, I didn't have a leash like you did. Yeah, my mom put a <laughs> leash on. Well, that was a very short period of time. <laughs> when they I had, would see something, that, yeah. that, and then I look back, and my mom or dad, whoever I was with at the time, Gone. like looking around, being like, where the hell did he And go? that was one of those other things. In, in the 80s, we, it was instilled into us, the... Uh, you know, uh, the dangers of, of getting lost and, and you know, not talking to strangers. And uh, I remember being in kindergarten. I remember sitting next to this kid, and this kid, William, was like, yeah, I talked to a stranger once. He, he offered me a glass of juice, and I drank it. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I drank it. <laughs> I was like, wow, William, that's crazy. There's a uh, scene in the new season of Glow. Okay. Um where I mean, I don't think this is much of a spoiler because it's, it's more of like a gimmick. But there's like a, a little kid walks onto an elevator mm. in like a ho- in the you know like a hotel casino, and then the doors close, and that exact thing happened to me when I was a kid. 
at the time my dad was living in uh what's the gimmick you were saying i mean it's like it's not like a i'm saying it's not really a, a, a spoiler oh, like okay. nothing really uh happens yeah you know this isn't it's no big uh secret that exact thing happened to me when i was little but apparently i was like so little that i don't even remember it my dad was living in there was a hotel in in philadelphia where half the hotel was like a hotel hotel and then half the hotel was like apartments sure kind of and uh they just took their eyes off me for two seconds. That's all it takes. And I just waddled on <laughs> in my diaper. Doors closed. And then like my brother and my dad were running up and downstairs looking for me. Turns out they found me like down in the kitchen. Oh, like, you took you you traveled and you yeah, yeah. got I, off I, of I, Yeah, and apparently turned it like the, baby's day out. Some of, the, <laughs> some of the kitchen workers just found me and they sat me down and I was like they were just like I was eating something, and they were just sitting there with me. And oh, but you you were there. into it. It wasn't like you were like I I used I think to I was have so little that I didn't even know what was going on. Like I don't even remember it. Like I was I, in diapers. Yeah. So. Oh, oh. Oh. So you're literally yeah just waddling over. Uh, I literally have like traumatic instances where it's like I was you know like I I walked away and then I became cognizant of it and like had oh, like yeah. a freak out. Well, that happened when I got you a know? little bit older. Yeah. That happened at the. Franklin Institute, it was, which was a big museum. I think you, you I think you brought this up on the <laughs> podcast before. Uh, and I, when I saw something, I jolted over because it's a very interactive type sure. museum. I mean, they have like a child's kids section, which is extremely interactive. But even the adult section is pretty, you know, not adult, but you know, the non-child section. It's yeah, not like porno. <laughs> <laughs> I need another quarter. Anyway, so I saw something. I jolted over, and then I looked back, and I saw my parents and my brother like leaving the room. Yeah. And I was like, uh, and then just like, you know, you just panic as a little kid and then you just start crying. And luckily there's always like some mom. Oh, it's like, are you okay? Yeah. (laughs) And then they take you to whatever the security where they announce. Uh, I remember one time in warehouse foods, it was a food store in New Haven where I was looking up and I thought my parents were behind me or I guess I thought my mom was behind me. I'm looking at the toys. I was like, I want that. I want this. And I want that. And I turned around and some old guy was there. Yeah. Old to me because I was four, but yeah. he's like, "Would you?" Uh, Probably like eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> but I remember, I remember him being older. Like he had white, like you know, gray hair. But he's like, yeah, yeah, "I'll buy you whatever you want up there, kid." And I was like, "Ah!" And I ran like, <laughs> you know, or I, or oh, that's <laughs> creepy, you know. Or like I remember another time I went with my dad. My dad would take me a lot of places. It's probably like you know, my mom and him would get into a fight. My mom's like, "You're not doing anything with him." So my dad would, he would take me on the tasks he had to do during the day. Oh yeah, well that was you know, yeah. Still to this day, like I don't. I like I never want to go to like a TJ Maxx or go to a hardware store. I mean, I know like a hardware store is supposed to be like a guy thing, but I got dragged to like the hardware store. You know, you don't have babysitters back yeah, then, so you're you know, just going just, anywhere. I remember my dad took me to his friend was like a a, a, a warehouse. He was a distributor of like um, bathroom tiles, so we went to like the store, and my dad was talking to the guy in the office. So I wandered off, yeah. and then next thing I know, there's a freaking Doverman. Like corner me in a, in a corner, barking like it's about to attack me, and you know because it's probably the guard dog in the place. Yeah, and I'm like yelling at it, like get away, get away, and they found me. They're like, "What'd you walk off for?" And I was like, "Oh, the fucking dog is gonna kill me." You know, I'm a little kid. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Are you keep an eye on me. I need another cigarette. Give me a cigarette. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Christ! What's wrong? Tell it, Bob. You're fucked. Uh, and then lastly, um, I remember my mom trying to scare me. You know, my mom told me the story of Scared the... Um, straight? Yeah. She told me the story of Lindbergh's baby. 
but she added something about it being decapitated. She, she made a couple of <laughs> <laughs> took some liberties, yeah, <laughs> some dramatic liberties. There was a there was a there was a, 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 a department store called Kings, which uh, I think was in our area. It was kind of like a Caldor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only in New Haven. I remember being very very young, and, and then. After I was five, it left the town. But uh, we went in there, and my mom was telling me, like, you know, like the, the little yim- limber bit. They never found. They only found his head in a ditch. You know, it was almost the end of like the um, um, good night, not good night, Irene. The uh, where'd you go last night? You know, where uh, where just where'd you sleep last night? You know, the Lead Belly song. You know, mm-hmm. like they found his his head in a driveway, but his body was never found in the pines. <laughs> so my mom told me that, and I was like, for the rest of my life, I was like, I'm not leaving the aisle. Because remember, we talked about this in oh, yeah. growing up at the department store where you go into the coat racks yeah, and it's like, a, uh, it's like the fly. It's like if those are, <laughs> you go into one coat rack and you, that's like going to that booth. Teleported yeah, to you, the other yeah. side of the store. And you, you come out and you're in another <laughs> coat rack and you're in the ladies department. You're like, what the fuck? Ladies laundry? <laughs> we always made jokes you get in there and you find like other kids in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's a skeleton of some kid with like a, with like you know, like a, a, a coonskin cap on from from uh, what's his face, David Crockett. <laughs> you know, he went in and never came out. Yeah, there's another kid that's eating there, and he's got like his Kiss T-shirt on, and he's five years. He's like you know, who's the president? <laughs> is it still Carter? No. <laughs> what year is it? The date. <laughs> is Nixon still in the White House? No. <laughs> it's Reagan now. Well, anyway, we got a big topic to get to. We do. Yeah. So we should probably. Get on task. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. This is, uh, I'm Jay Blake, and that's Dion Baya. Hi. This is day two of our consecutive <sighs> yeah sleepover. Sleepover. Yeah. We started this one kind of early because we got bored in the day. You know, it's like you sleep over well, the friend's house, and then we had some fruity pebbles. Yeah. Blake Blake brought his fruity fruity pebbles <laughs> over. You know, he had his own little. He came in his little his, um, Tupperware. We watched some. Uh, Three Afternoon Stooges. television. Yeah, we watched some Pinwheel. We watched some um, Today's Special. <laughs> Little Prince. Little Prince. We watched some uh, Reboot. <laughs> Inhumanoids. <laughs> watched some of the Reboot. Then I, Pirates we, of Blackwater. Then we turned on some there's fun. Fl- there's a blast from the past. <laughs> right Pirates there. of Darkwater. Oh, yeah, Darkwater. Uh, th- we watched some Thundar. Then we rounded out the morning watching some uh, Super Friends. And then... Uh, that was about by the time that was over, it was like three o'clock. Went in the pool for a little while. Went in the pool, yeah, and put then on, put on our water wings, jumped yeah. in the pool, <laughs> yeah. And then my, uh, I got some terrible strafing problems on my <laughs> genitalia now because I didn't wear it right. You know, when you, ever, you get out, you're in the pool too long, you come out and you, yeah. For that's our guy. I mean, I guess girls would have that too, but that was a guy problem. Me going up some of the costumes I'd wear. I never had tidy speedos, you know, like you see. Mm-hmm. I always had like boxers, even when I wore tidy whitey. As a kid, like underwear, uh, loose. Yeah, I still had, um, you know, the bo- I had like boxer shorts as the uh, underwater, or the, the the swimming wear. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> and I, you know, we'd have a hide a pool in the backyard. It's all day long. You're in the pool. You come out. You're a freaking prune, you know. And then yeah. you're all your skin gets soft. And- yeah. Or you, we had the uh, the deck had that fake astroturf. So boy, you can get some terrible rug burn. Like trying to get up and sliding <laughs> off. You remember that my, stuff? My dad's pool. My dad had an in-ground pool when I was little, but uh, there was like no lining. You know how like now there's like a rubber lining in the, the in-ground pool. Yeah. So it was what stone it was like. It, was, it like, was like cement. Yeah, yeah. It was just and they so dug you, a hole and they just yeah filled that and let it dry. And you, so there's no one. Uh, so after you're in the pool for a while, you get out and your bottoms of your feet were all like 
scratched up. Yeah. Because, you know, with the water, you, your your skin gets very, like, soft and tender. And then sure. you run around. We're playing basketball. Yeah. You know, had, like, a hoop Tripping, in there. Tripping. You know, you're <laughs> scraping your toe. <laughs> you get out. You look at the bottom of your feet. Blood. And they're just, like, <laughs> one, one layer of skin away from being bloody. <laughs> <laughs> so then we got into like wearing shoes in to. the pool, and before they had like the, like the, you know, like the aqua sock, like waterproof shoes. My dad's like, here, just put on those old pair of sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> and we would literally like lace up old shoes, all like heads or whatever they call, them. or like uh, you know, or like you know, dock, dockers, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the deck shoes, yeah, yeah. Or, like whatever was like old, and my dad didn't care if uh, you know the chlorine. Yeah, but water. that's like you're, you got weights, yeah, you know, tied and they to your feet, and they all, or they just kind of float. Oh, you see, ah. Uh, I can't get down. <laughs> Our pool was uneven. It was a round pool, but it was homemade for when we bought the pool. House was built in the 40s when we moved to suburbia, and we were the second owners of the house. So the back, you've been in it. It mm-hmm. was big and round, above ground pool. But then in the middle, it was kind of like a cone. So the middle of the pool was a little deeper than everything else. So it was like four feet around the center, then maybe like five feet or five and a half feet right in the middle. So when I was little, that was cool, you know, but it was always like, you know, you, you walk, you slide <laughs> down, to yeah. the, you don't realize you're going down to no man's land. So, um, yeah, we got a big topic today. We're back with, this is technically, we're in September, right? Mm-hmm. So we're one away from our um, anniversary. Our anniversary. We're wrapping up. This is probably the wrap up of the uh, summer of sequels for everyone. Technically. Yeah. I believe so. I mean, we're back at school. School started. Yeah. That's why it was so hard for us. We had the two-day sleepover because we had a lot of homework to do. So our parents, they came together and they said, you know what? Fuck it. Have them do it two nights back to back. We'll take the bullet because they don't have to drive. it. It's only one drive over, one drive back. <laughs> exactly. In the, um, in the Oldsmobile uh, station wagon. So, And this is also a sequel. This is a sequel. But in a non-traditional sense. It's more of a thematic sequel. Correct. That's true. And yeah, in like almost a series. So... Uh, we're doing this week. We're going way down the alley. Way not, down the alley. Not as way down as we've we've gone. We've been further down the alley. We have, and we were further <laughs> down the alley this year with um, rope, not rope, uh, rear window, rear window. Um, but we're doing uh, for a few dollars more from uh, 1965, uh, released in the states in 1967. Uh, Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood, Jean Maria Volante, and Klaus Kinski. <laughs> So Lee Van Cleef and Lee Van Cleef, my my man, Lee Van Cleef, who used to I loved in in his in the seventies and eighties. He would casually wear the open black shirts, so you could see the chest hair that's become white, but then big medallions. <laughs> yeah, you know he had those big like you know you know those ninja movies or then you know he had like a ninja show or whatever, mm-hmm. and it, he would ha- he'd be like in the black on black, kind of like the era of um, Delta Force. I don't think I don't know if he's in Delta Force. But uh, he is in Escape from New York. Correct. But he's, he's not dressed like that. No. He's but more so this is his second appearance on the show. This is his second because we did uh, Escape from New York. We, that was the season opener a couple seasons ago, 2016 or 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One of our finest hours. One of our finest hours, uh, might we say. But uh, so Dion is a, a self-proclaimed Western fan. I am a and Western a fan. Clint Eastwood aficionado. I am a person who knows a little more than they should about Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Uh, so 
uh, and I though would not categorize myself, categorize myself as Clint Eastwood fan. I am a fan of several of his movies, including the uh, Spaghetti Westerns. Mm. So the fact that we were going to do one of these movies was inevitable at some point. Yeah. Oddly enough, separately, we had some listeners request The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Have we? Yes. A couple of weeks ago. Actually, like a week before... This recording? We No, before we came up with the idea to do this on the show. <laughs> Someone said do The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, somebody's like, we really like to hear you guys do Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And I said, well, we're in the midst of the summer of sequels. <laughs> Bruh, we're in the midst of summer of sequels. And I said, and I even told them, I said, honestly... Uh, certainly one of the Westerns, one of the Leone Westerns is, uh, inevitable, but, uh, both Diad and I favor for a few dollars more. So I said, if we were to do one out of the three, yeah, if we were to do one, that would probably be the first one Yeah, we would tackle. And I don't know, did we ever have this on a list of possible movies to do? Because, you know, when you know, I, I like Eastwood, so I was naming a couple of Eastwood movies and you're and like, I'd be like, no, fuck that shit. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we can't do too many. Yeah. We do Carpenter all the time. You're like, Eastwood sucks. <laughs> and he takes it in the pooper. What? What does that even mean? Um, so we had some stuff, but we had, I, never, I never conceived we'd even go back this far for, for some reason. I don't know. I guess I, in my back of my head, I always kind of figured at some point. It's a good episode. Yeah, like yeah. We, we'd get to it. I mean, I think it's the, we've only done Tombstone in terms of Westerns on the show. Yeah, I definitely was thinking of trying to figure out how to shoehorn in another Western or two, and there's certainly a lot of good Westerns out there that we like that could it's, be on know, the, the show. The, you know, little behind-the-scenes inside baseball for the listeners. It's a, it's can be actually tough trying to figure out what to do on the show because they're, you know, one, Dion's and my taste doesn't always align to uh you know it, it, it's tough to figure out like what i mean one of the early ba- concepts concepts of the show is that we would talk about certain type of movie we would we would talk about certain movies that don't get talked about that way you know in um in like really analyze and and like celebrate it in a certain way and of course there's a lot of nostalgic podcasts and so there was, there's just, there was a lot of like unspoken rules early on that have been uh, softened or kind of abandoned uh, over the years. So it's just it's tough to figure out like what constitutes something that's right for the show because some of the older movies like from nineteen from the sixties, I mean clearly like our audience often not always it's not as interested in it because they don't do as well yeah <laughs> so that's the, so there's the broader a, there, thing my was point too is, was my point is we're always there's a lot of factors that we have to juggle and kind of think about when we're trying to figure out what we want to do yeah we've had favorites but people but then we're worried about if it'll do well and it's like well i've always said to that well you know what well at least we're doing it maybe gradually people it'll it'll yeah but now it's know. also tough because you know sometimes we have advertising and then you know we want a show that we have an advertiser for to do as well as possible, sure. so that they might want to advertise with us again. And then, if like it mother's just, best it, flower, and if it just like <laughs> aligns that we're doing something from like way down the alley that not a lot of people have seen or are interested in hearing us talk about, yeah, then it's like that <laughs> the advertiser stuck with a show that <laughs> not as many people listen to comparatively, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, there's a lot of factors, but <clears throat> at the end of the day. 
the thing that's most important is that uh, it be a movie that at least one of us really enjoys and that both of us think we can have a good conversation about. And so that ends up being the real deciding factor. And so like I th- feel like I always kind of assumed that we would go down this alley at some point. Yeah. It's just a matter of when. It's the first Eastwood Because we Western. also spent a lot of time thinking like, okay, we did a comedy now. Yeah. You know. We don't want to be too redundant. <laughs> you know, this summer was a, ha- had, happened to have a lot of like action yeah. sequels because those were the big sequels when we were growing up. The Things sequels. Things like RoboCop and Predator and Terminator 2. And so and- we spent a lot of time in, in certain territory this summer, but for the most part, we tried to... We try to like not repeat ourselves uh, genre or or theme wise, you know, consec- in consecutive episodes as much as we can. So we can have the, maybe the most broad appeal to the general audience. Also, it keeps us it keeps it interesting for us. Yeah, too. as well. Um, and then it was always, you know, how far do we go back? I mean, we've gone back to 1934. We've done. <laughs> have we done anything in the 40s? I, I don't know. know if we've hit the 40s. But yet. We did we've 50s, done, we've we've done done the 60s, 70s. Yeah. So. Um, it, and this was more spur of the moment where we had something else kind of, uh, you know. Um, we were going to do something else this week, and then we decided. Dion, I think you were like. Someone brought something up to me and asked yeah. me about it. You're like, it. you know, we should have done summer sequels. We should have done for a few hours yeah. more. I was like, well, let's do it instead of that. And I was like, I was like, but we have. But then that was the other conflict was that we have everything mapped out to keep it easier for our sleepovers. So I was like. He's like, what do we have left? He is in Blake. And I was like, well, we only have three slots open. And then he was like, well, then fuck it. Let's put it here. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, wow, that's going to be a big task. You know, like, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a kind of a big topic, you know, but it's, it is a, it is a fun sequel. It's one of us. And we certainly, we're fans. I of, would say that this is one of my favorite Westerns of all time. Wow. Um, I, it, you know, I think when we did Raiders of the Lost Ark and maybe Temple of Doom, I made the argument that like, on any given day, I would say Raiders of Lost Ark <clears throat> or Last Crusade is my favorite Indiana Jones yeah. movie. For 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 what, as terms of Leone, I love 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 Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, but they are kind of like neck and neck. Like some days it depends on what I'm kind of mood, and I'll be like, oh, for a few dollars more is my best. And there's actually you know what we'll get into is in my mind they're actually very similar, and I think that's one of the reasons why. For a few dollars more in uh, One Spot on the West? Yeah, like, there's, in some ways, stylistically for me, for a few dollars more is almost like the... The brother? Yeah, like the brother? prototype yeah. of sure. stuff that he would later do yeah. uh, in Once Upon a Time in the West. But in terms of, you know, when I met Dion, of course, you know, like, I, I you know, we were both huge Tombstone fans, and uh, my grandfather was very into Westerns, and... Uh, and so I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid before I moved up to Albany. My mom was a single mom, and so I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house as my mom was uh, working. And so I would watch, like, Bonanza with my grandfather. Bonanza! And back then, even though there was only three VHS channels and... Uh, no, three uh, VHF and UHF channels in Philadelphia, we didn't have my grandparents didn't have cable, you'd get a lot of westerns and stuff would be played sure the, especially on the weekend afternoon there that's yeah that's and so we when i met hit Dion, on but yeah and so when i met Dion, uh you were all at, westerned out right? and he was a big fan of of you know eastwood and the westerns and i'd be like you know what like i've i've seen them all but i was also very i was also pretty little 
Yeah. I was pretty young, and they were just on television. You're like, I'm into horror movies. So, so bro, I was, no, I was, so I was just like, I've seen them all, but like, in, in, like, I can't, like, they're, I can't tell you which one's which. Yeah. Because I would, we'd catch them. It wasn't like, Blake, uh, it's going for a few dollars more, it's about to start. <laughs> you got to come on down and sit down, and we're going to watch a few dollars more. You know, we'd be on, and it'd be like, Pop Bob, there's a Western on, and then he would... This is a Harry Carey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then we would sit there and watch it. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the John Wayne and the Clint Eastwood Westerns I'd seen, but I didn't know which ones were which. Um, later, you know, in high school, I watched uh, All Josie Wales, specifically like on VHS, and... Uh, High Plains Drifter, some of the later ones. And what other? But what other? You like? I know you like Unforgiven, right? What other Eastwood westerns do you like? I do like Un. I like Unforgiven. I haven't seen Unforgiven in a really long time, but uh, I did like it when it came out. Um, you like? I, I, I like High Plains Drifter. High Plains Drifter. Joe Kidd or Pale Rider. I'm Hillary. not as crazy about Outlaw Josie Wales as most people, but I don't. I certainly don't dislike it. Yeah. It's just uh, it's it's first the Eastwood westerns. It's basically like the Leone ones and High Plains Drifter. Are my favorites, yeah, um, and I like and I liked Unforgiven when it came out, but I had, it's been at least ten years since I watched Unforgiven, probably yeah. more. It's actually one that I've been over the years. I've been like, I really want to watch Unforgiven, and then you look at all the fucking streaming networks that you're paying for, yeah, and it's never on any of them. <laughs> I know, yeah, and it's like, do I really want to buy Unforgiven? I really just want to watch Unforgiven, yeah. and then if I like it, maybe I'll buy it, but I haven't seen it in so long. Yeah, and so there's actually there's I've been wanting to watch Unforgiven uh, at various points over the years, but just can never find it. Yeah, so I've just never so it's it's never been watched. Um, but the, the only westerns have been watched many times. Uh, I remember when you in college because you were you were getting into you know you horror and all that kind of stuff. You you know you. you but told I was me also that. I was also getting into uh, the Italian exploitation. Yeah, and so. Uh, you know, partially from your interest, and then also my budding interest in in Italian exploitation movie. That was like I revisited them all. Yeah, I remember post college, you got you were the first person I knew that got that Man Without a Name trilogy box yeah. set, and I was like, ooh, because I still had them on VHS or just the individual DVDs. So, um, and then yeah, I remember you got back into them. Then you know, yeah. and then that's when we had the conversation for about three dollars more because we we were talking about. It, westerns or leone or eastwood and uh i'd always make the case so i i like i like all three of them yeah i like them all too i like but oddly enough good bad the ugly is probably my least favorite of the three yeah me too i mean like you know fistful hour fistful of dollars is great uh good in the bag the ugly for me is great too but for me that's a little long yeah and then i and i've always you always hear the first and the third talked about yeah. the first is so groundbreaking the third is so amazing it's like the the the, the best one aside from once upon a time in the west that maybe there's arguments that it's better than it. i would say well, there are people that think that's the uh, quintess- yeah maybe because they're just not as familiar in some cases i think maybe they're just not as familiar with once upon a time in the west yeah and it doesn't mean to say that if they saw once upon a time they would think it was better yeah but i think they you know people are like this is my favorite this is the best one and and it's mostly because sometimes because they just are not familiar with the other ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they just have a certain nostalgia because that's the one that turned them on. To yeah. It. And this would always be, uh, and they did for a few dollars more. And then when I got into Eastwood specifically, you know, my father luckily was buying all these. So uh, we had a lot of uh, 
Eastwood owned movies, surprisingly, I guess we just had westerns. And I was the one who probably bought when I got into them some other stuff or yeah. rented them. But we had Fistful of Dollars. We had For a Few Dollars More. We never had The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We had Hang Em High. And then we had Outlaw Josie Wales and maybe High Plains Drifter. And uh, for I forget who it was. Maybe it was like an MGM. You know when MGM bought Universal Artists? United mm-hmm. Artists, yeah, uh, it was one of those kind of deals. So the box, the the box was always for the two of these. Were so awesome looking. It was like these stylized drawings of like the first one was with Eastwood like looking at the camera with his with his with the gun up by his head like looking at you like a Punisher <coughs> pose. Yeah. And then the second one for a few dollars more, which I fell in love with, and it's it's one of my favorite Western posters. Is that iconic? Uh, it's, it was drawn, but I think it was from a movie poster. But it's him at the end of the movie holding the the Winchester rifle, and then in the other hand holding the watch, mm-hmm. you know, with the with the poncho on. It's like that iconic where the where the barrel of the the rifle's going way out, sure, and, you know. Yeah. And that was the cover of it. I'm like, these look awesome, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Probably because too, I was, you know, he kind of looked to me like the the artist text drew the Punisher, you know. So I was like, this guy, you know. So yeah. when I got into the Eastwood and his westerns, uh, I drifted to these two, and then. This one specifically because I just loved the story and I thought it was so classic, even a little more than Fistful of Dollars. Because for me, I used to get, as a young person, I get a little bored in the middle of Fistful of Dollars. You know what I mean? Like when yeah. you, with the setup and him bouncing, you know, the whole uh, elements you see in Yojimbo Yo or Red Harvest where he's bouncing mm-hmm. between the, the families and all that. This to me, for a few dollars more, was always much more fast paced, fun sure. elements of when, cinema, you know. When I rewatched A Fistful of Dollars uh, in college, or just post college, or towards the end of college, it was I was it was a summertime, yeah, because <clears throat> I was visiting my mom, and there was nothing to do there, so I just watched movies, and so we I'm, we've talked about on the show before, I'm sure, where <clears throat> sometimes I watch a movie and it's just it's a movie that makes me want to make movies, yeah, and I talked about how it's usually a movie that's usually kind of low budget, but they achieve so much and it's just so awesome and it's kind of very inspiring, and for me when I rewatched a fistful of dollars. That was definitely the case. Like, I was like, oh, my God, like, I want to go out and make a fucking movie. Yeah. Like, look at this. This is awesome. And then I think through conversation, maybe you were like, oh, my favorite of the series is for a few dollars more. And then I revisited that. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think you were definitely the first one to be like, this is my favorite of them. And his biographer, in researching this, feels turns, that it turns out that Eastwood's biographer that they he thinks this is the best because it's... It's uh, a little more on point and action-packed than the first one, and it's condensed. It's not as big as the third one. Yeah, there's a lot. I I have very specific thoughts about why, Um, but I would love to set the table a little bit about spaghetti westerns, if you don't mind. Sure. I'll try to make it as concise as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think it's important, and we talked about some of this stuff in terms of the way Italian, uh, Italian film business worked in the 60s and the 70s in some of our giallo uh, Italian like red uh, deep red and Suspiria some of our Italian like horror movies but I, it, you know it's an interesting the Italian film industry is fascinating to me um, and I actually even in researching for this I learned even more about it than I than I knew before it's important to put certain things in context uh, you know the French New Wave for instance was kind of started uh, inspired by Hollywood because of post-World War II. During World War II, the French didn't get any of the American films. 
you know, they weren't imp- exported to Europe yeah, during yeah. World War II. So post-World War II, a lot of the American uh, films and literature and stuff started to hit Europe. And they were for, seeing stuff that was maybe five or six years old by Yeah, this that's point. why they got obsessed Delayed. with, like, film noir yeah. after. Because they were seeing not, it all for the first time. Not that film noir was ever a craze in America. They were B-pictures. Yeah. Thought of as B pictures, <laughs> but then some of these Europeans saw these films after the fact in the late forties, yeah. and they were like, "Wow, a lot of these are special." And yeah. they became obsessed with Hitchcock, who Hitchcock was special here too during the time. And uh, they'd just been through a war too, so it, it definitely refined. We can get into how that even affected all this. Post- yeah. yeah, yeah. So the same thing happened with Italy, but Italy was kind of even worse because, you know, even for 20 years, for decades before World War II, uh, it was a fascist country. So a lot of the American film and stuff was just being kept away by Mussolini and stuff. So uh, it wasn't until it was post-World War II that all of a sudden all these American films, once, you know, uh, Italy had established itself as a republic. All these American films and literature came to America. Now, it's very important. I mean, came to Italy. And it's important because the people of Leone's generation, when that started to happen, were like in their teens and early 20s, which, at least for me, was my most formative years of film viewing and music and stuff. And so that was really important. As to why then they would go and try to do something like a Western 10 years, you know, 10, 15 years later. Um, also, post-World War II in the 50s and 60s, there was a big economic boom in northern Italy. Not so much in, in, in mid-Italy and southern Italy, but in nord- northern Italy, there was this big economic boom. And the thing that I didn't realize until now is that there really was a divide in the film industry, of Italy, in, in Italy, of Northern Italy and Southern Italy. And so you get people like Fellini and Antonioni and, uh, you know, Visconti, they were all Northern American, Northern Italian filmmakers. So a lot of like the artier Italian cinema is coming out of Northern Italy. And they actually looked down upon what was going on in Southern Italy. Yeah, and then if you look at the regionally, up north is where Milan is. That was the fashion capital. You know, up there, you have like Venice and Rome. And then as you go south, you well, get Rome, Rome is like mid-Italy, and that's where the divide starts to happen. Yeah. Because then you get people like... And south of that is like Naples, I think. Right? Yeah, Naples yeah. is even further south. So, Leo, so like Leone was, uh, you know, he, he was born and was from Rome, but his family was from Naples. But guys like, so you get people. I'm from Naples too. <laughs> people like, uh, so you get like Leone and then uh, Fulci at the time, uh, later Argento, who was a little bit younger. They're all from like Rome. So they're coming from a different type of Italian cinema than people like Fellini and Antonioni were, which is uh, more of the exploitative Italian cinemas being made. In Rome, and also in the fifties uh, as well, the the sword and sandal epics are huge. Well, that's yeah, you know, so that was a huge. Because what happens is <clears throat> the big, the big that's epics. W- you start to get the find something that was successful and f- 
redo the shit out of it yeah. until it's dead starts kind of with these Hercules sword and sandal films in the late 50s into the yeah, into you, the mid 60s you get like Hollywood productions going on location sometimes to Italy in the mid 50s and they're doing these pictures and then a lot of people like Leone and stuff work on these pictures and then they get a handle like you're saying like hey we could be doing this on our own here and I you know maybe Barabbas is an example of a of a cross promotion but you get a lot of these where then American actors start working over there too and doing stuff and Leone worked as an assistant director on many films before branching on his own. His first full directing credit is one of these sword and sandal films um, called The Colossus of Rhodes from 1961. Yeah. Um, ultimately, he only made seven films as a director. Leone. Yeah, but he worked as an assistant director for a long time. Now, you pair what's going on with... Uh, you know, this influx of American film combined with the North and South divide and stuff that we've talked about in our more Italian horror movie aspects is that Italy was also very much a movie culture. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, they they originally got television, like, much earlier, but then when World War II started, like, all transmissions were halted. And so they didn't actually get television again until 1954, and then even then, there was like one public Italian station. Yeah, with with World War II, the first <coughs> image that's broadcast is Hitler at the Olympics in '36, I think, which is in that movie. Uh, you know, Judy Foster, uh, the uh, Hagen, Carl Carl Sagan, Contact, mm-hmm. and then. TV's going until the war sets in and then everyone abandons television for the war years and everything is put on hiatus really except the film industry in America but we don't even make cars in America because everything is turned (coughs) into like plants to build bombers and tanks so at the end of the war in the 40s then we go back to TV and we start doing TV and you know and then that's why TV becomes really a mainstay by the end of the 40s into the 50s here in the early 50s it becomes a huge phenomenon yeah. and then that's what you're saying by the mid 50s Italy it's reintroduced into Europe yeah Italy didn't really or, get like homes didn't get televisions into the mid to the late 50s but then they only had like one public uh, Italian station they didn't start getting private stations channels until the 70s yeah and so <clears throat> even though there were popular television shows Italy remained a very film movie culture uh, centric culture in that every small town had at least one movie theater and as a side note we talked about this sort of when we did um uh profundo rosso yeah red deep red deep red argento we talked about the beginnings of giallo and this about and how the exploitation cinema that italy was putting out was very much one geared to an international audience but two geared towards the this movie culture of going to a movie as a social thing. Yeah. And not necessarily going to watch the movie, but like I'll meet Dion at the movies and we'll catch up. We'll talk, have a glass of wine. And then every like 10, 15 minutes, you need something outrageous to happen to draw our attention back to the screen because everybody's just talking. So to be in action, <laughs> it was like, you breasts, know, it was like sex. Let's go to a club yeah. and catch up. People would go to the movies and it was a very social event. Yeah. And because they weren't necessarily sitting around watching TV, they did this, you know, throughout the week. And so sometimes had three movie theaters. Um, and so Italy needed to, 
they weren't necessarily getting all the American pictures for those for all of these smaller towns. So Italy needed an industry to fill those movie houses with stuff. There was a demand, and so they started pumping out a lot of these like lower budget exploitation and films. And there, I think, pretty early on, they whoever it was to take credit for this gets the idea: if we can do uh, maybe international co uh, co productions with different countries, and then we can allure a lead from Germany, yeah. from England, from America over, we can then do the movie and then when we shop it around, uh, if Ernest Borgnine's in it, oh, American audiences will recognize him. If, uh, you know, uh, Donald Pleasance is in it, English audiences will recognize him. If uh, Klaus Kinski's in it, German, so they, so they know that that's a marketing tool when yeah. they go to... Because ultimately, you know, as you know the, they the, were catering to an Italian audience, but they knew that the money was international sales. Yeah. And so to amplify their chances at, at international success, they're like, we'll put actors from every country. This is also where the idea of not recording production sound comes into play because you had literally have actors that don't speak the same language talking to each other yeah. on screen. And this is funny <coughs> enough all covered in the latest Quentin Tarantino movie of this record, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But you do have, they end up shooting stuff MOS, mid-doubt sound, which is much cheaper because you're not having to record. So you don't have to worry about a plane going overhead or yeah. this or that or make to take. All you have to do is just record silently and that's a whole other issue of why because people do know that cameras don't record sound back then. Yeah, you'd have a separate <laughs> yeah, system. sound system, and then you'd have to sync them up. Later on. So this so was cost-effective I mean, you as get well. stories like when we talked about Suspiria, of like, uh, when we covered Suspiria, Jessica Harper, who's the star of Suspiria, talking about like she being in a scene with a woman who speaks German, yeah. a woman who speaks Italian, a woman who speaks French. And then when they marketed those films to those countries, that was who was at the top of the marquee. <laughs> yeah, whoever that is. Hey, but then you'd have these, com- and that's a really, we, we might have talked about that in Suspiria, but Eastwood would say this too. It's like, you really know how to, know, had to know your lines because you're doing a scene and Blake and I, Blake speaks Italian. I'm delivering my lines in English. Blake's replying to me in his native language. Yeah. And then that's the end of the scene. And then the director <laughs> and all the crew speak another language. And it's like, okay, got, you know. Now, uh, in terms of Westerns, you know, there's a, a figure that up until 1960, 40 per, roughly 40% of all Hollywood films made were Western. I'd like to get into uh, Hollywood Westerns a bit and TV Westerns, but let's keep going with what you're saying. Uh, but then because... Te- well, I mean, this is a good place if you, if you have stuff to add to it. Sure. Because uh, one of the reasons why Western production for American cinema started to slow down was because of television. Um, you have up until post-war, you know, you're getting a lot of Westerns prior to World War II. We've, we've talked about how movies were a little more, didn't have the sting of, I'd say, after war. And you get a lot of the film noir themes and all that kind of a thing. The, the soldiers coming back and seeing the horrors of war and that affects what their, their output in music and also in cinema. So in the 50s, you get this great uh, series of films. It's kind of like, if you look at it like, you know, with um, Edgar Allan Poe, creating the detective uh, in uh, Murder in the Rue Morgue. That's pre-World War II. And then you have in the 50s, yeah, in the late 40s and the 50s, you start having these psychological westerns. So we can say that's like England taking you know, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle or, or uh, Agatha Christie taking it to England and doing the detective over there. 
uh, in the 50s, you have these uh, psychological westerns where they're much more deep and they're they're dealing with issues of there's a great uh, run of Jimmy Stewart, Anthony Mann movies where it's very psychological. They're talking about, you know, you steal from me, you do this, that, you know, they, they get very dimensional as opposed to back in the old days. It was good guy was in white, bad guy was in black, say. Uh, and then in the 50s, up until uh, 1952 on TV, they only really had the Lone Ranger and uh, the Gene uh, the Gene Autry show, which were the only westerns on television. But they were catering really to kids, <clears throat> you know. So um, in 1955, uh, Gunsmoke drops, and Gunsmoke uh, runs until 1975. So you think about that's a 20 year run. I think it was only just beaten, you know, some years ago by The Simpsons, you know, being the longest running show of all time. Sure. Uh, that's going through multi-generations. And that becomes, uh, that airs on a Saturday night and it's geared towards adults. And it's because of the popularity of these psychological westerns, they start saying, oh, we can do a TV show like this. So by uh, 1956, you get Cheyenne comes out. Uh, that's huge. And that leads into 57 of shows like uh, Have Gun Will Travel, Maverick, Wagon Train, The Restless Gun. And then in 58, you get Wanted Dead or Alive comes out with Steve McQueen, which is kind of the first time where you have a character. He plays a bounty hunter, Josh Randall, on the show. But that's the first time you get a character in a, in a TV show where he's not really a good, you know, he's a bounty hunter. So he could be an antihero. He could be a questionable means. It's not like he's a sheriff or a marshal or a, a ranch he's, hand. He's not necessarily, he might have a code, but he's not necessarily as worried with the morality of things exactly and that's you know breaking new ground along with that you also get the rifleman comes out and then around that time in 58 you get this huge scandal which ends up uh having uh house of Rev representative subcommittee hearings about the the game shows that are taped live in new york city the big money that they come to find out they were rigged there's a movie called quiz show i think that's about that yeah robert redford directed it. yeah and um john Turturro's in it maybe Ray rob morrow and ray fines ray fines right um, and that's all about how it's kind of it's a very interesting story but because of that uh, TV they dump more money into westerns because they're so popular so then in 59 you get Rawhide and Bonanza come out and those go into the 60s and then literally the only things that really end up surviving uh, through the Vietnam years and all the turbulent 60s are the established the, the established worlds of settled places which is basically Bonanza which is the Ponderosa, and then Wagon... Um, uh, what did I just say? Gunsmoke, which is Dodge City. Yeah. So at that time, you have all these kind of people coming out and breaking out on TV, uh, which we can... That was another conversation we can get into, but you have James Gardner coming out in 57 in... Um, Maverick. Maverick. 58, you get McQueen coming out in Wanted Dead or Alive, and then 59, you get uh, Eastwood doing Rawhide. But it's a great way of... Of of it's hugely popular at at the prime. There's like at least thirty five TV shows uh, westerns on TV, and then yeah. that's not counting Plus, the, radio. You know, the, yeah, I was gonna say there's the, the you know westerns are big in the radio. Things like the Lone Ranger and yeah, they were big in comic books. There were western comic. You had books. Sing Along, you know, the Singing Cowboy. You had all those people, you know, doing kinds of stuff. So it was a very popular genre in the fifties, and then it's you know with the big budget epics of uh, the Sword and Sandal movies going into the late 50s there is an idea where th people start to get kind of tired of the psychological westerns and that's why I equated it before to Edgar Allan Poe and the detectives when you get Dashiell Hammett in the late 20s grabbing and doing uh, maybe Red Harvest or his early stuff there which ends up also being um, 
the Maltese Falcon. Uh, Raymond Chandler, who's also an, a, a very famous film noir author, he wrote a, a, an essay called The uh, Simple Art of Murder, I think it's called. And he's talking about Dashiell Hammett, and he says, Dashiell Hammett gave you a reason back to have a, you know, a murder except just to having it in a room for people to solve. And in the late 50s, if, if, if this is too roundabout way, people were getting sick of the psychological Western. It was a little too, you know complicated these really deep shows uh, you know every week where it's like you know some crazy catastrophe will happen then everything will be okay at the end so there was kind of a push to make a little more simple westerns get back to what you know the simplicity the good and the bad the uh the not so much the ugly (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly you know the uncomplicated this the the, you know the violent people the motivations the the what the glorification that really made it so iconic the genre so you do get two movies that are very influential to the Spaghetti Westerns, which is a movie called Vera Cruz from 1954 with, I think, Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster. But the cinematography and how they shoot the stuff is kind of, Leone says, was very influential to him. And then in 19, I think it's 58 or 60, uh, you get a movie called um, One-Eyed Jack, which is a Marlon Brando movie, which I also think he directed. And that also, it's like his outfits. It's very dirty. It's very, you know, it's something people really haven't seen before. And then along with the John Ford stuff, particularly the Searchers, uh, you get this idea now going back to Blake where it's like the West, you know, the people are going to start making this as a exploitative genre. Yeah. And just make it, hey, let's, let's, let's stop the con, not the convolutedness, but all the other kind of like thinking man, like Blake's saying, if these Italian guys are going to... Italian people are going to the cinema, they really got to pay attention to some of these, you know, Winchester 73 or the Bend in the River or Red River, you know, uh, as opposed to some of these earlier movies where it's just, it's very simple. The plots are just, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Yeah. And they wanted to get back to the pure essentials of it. Now, part of, you know, what leads to the Italians, uh, Leone making a Western, is that there were Westerns in Europe. Um, Italy had actually made some Western comedies uh, earlier um, in the 40s and into the 50s. One's called uh, The Boy in the West from 43, The Sheriff in 1959. So Westerns were being made. uh, Then in 58, there were some non-comedic Westerns like uh, The Sheriff of Factor Draw. But uh, kind of the most important aspect of the spaghetti western was that actually Germany started making uh, westerns because there was a there was a German writer named Karl May who was alive from 1842 to 1912 and he wrote novels that took place in the American Old West uh, and most specifically uh, Germany was making movies based on his books that were about a Native American and Apache hero named Winnetow um and so in the 60s, they started making these movies based on the Carl May movie, uh, books, like uh, Treasure of the Silver Lake in 62, Apache Gold in 63. Oh, Apache Gold. Old Shatterhead, <laughs> a.k.a. Apache's Last Battle in 1964. Um, and they made a sh- shitload of these movies from like 63 to 65. Now, why this is important is because those movies were popular not just in Germany, but in Europe in general. Which made the Italian film industry say, oh, if these movies are popular, maybe a, maybe on Western is a viable genre for us to explore. 
One Eyed Jack, Marlon Brando, 1961. Sorry. Uh, one of those westerns, for instance, uh, the American title is Gunfight at the Red Sands, which is a 1963 non-comedic Italian western. But before Fistful of Dollars uh, was that even had music by Neo Morricone. Yeah, who ends up collaborating with Leone here because they're old, old, I guess, classmates from school. They went to, to they went to school together growing up. And also, there was uh, another one called Magnificent Three. Obviously, <laughs> not the Magnificent Seven. Well, even the Fistful Gun, of Fight at High Noon. Fistful of Dollars' first title was The Magnificent Stranger. And we can get into that later, but when Eastwood went and did this and then came back, like a, almost a year went by, and then he hadn't heard anything about it, and he was sitting there reading, doing, still doing Rawhide, basically just a TV star, and he's reading the vari- variety, and it says, like, this movie, The Fistful of Dollars, is taking Europe by storm. He's like, wow, it sounds really good. And then, <laughs> yeah, he didn't even know it was his movie. Yeah, and then he realizes, the, you know, the star, American star Clint Eastwood is, is, is you know, now the, you know, the, the greatest star in Europe. And he's like, it's me. He's like, what the <laughs> fuck, you know? And even Sophie Loren comes over in the early 60s and she first comes to Hollywood and she's like, can I go meet the, the star of Europe? And they're like, who? And they're like, Clint Eastwood. And they're like, Clint Eastwood. They're like, you mean the, the, the Roddy Yates from, from fucking, uh, you know, Raw, Rawhide? And she's like, yep, that's the one. Well, I mean, basically the next step is that Leone makes Fistful of Dollars. Um, and of course, that's not the movie we're doing today. But there are important factors because it's the first one. Sure, one you know, Dion obviously can ex- uh, talk about this in greater uh, detail than I can. But part of it is, you know, the, just kind of stars align in terms of they wanted a Hollywood star, but they couldn't get people like Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson, yeah, and Lee Marvin. Although yeah. Lee Marvin almost did it. But couldn't ended up doing another movie instead. Yeah, he was maybe he, he was or Lee Marvin got offered this picture for a few dollars more, but he was doing Cats Baloo and he couldn't do this. They they might have offered Charles Bronson, James Colburn, a couple people, and they all passed on Fistful of Dollars because nobody knew script. who Leone was and yeah. they didn't know what the movie was. And the only reason Eastwood uh, Eastwood's trajectory in this is that um, he starts doing Rawhide, and you know. East was born 1930. He grows up in California. He bums around. You know, he's one of these kids, and it, it's interesting because you think about like the the like James Dean's upbringing or Steve McQueen's upbringing, where they were kind of a loner. Where his father, they travel with his dad for work during the Depression, so he was in like ten different schools till when he was the age ten. So he was kind of the loner, shy guy because of you know he couldn't make friends long because they were moving. So by the time he graduates in 1948, he does odd jobs like everyone else at the time he's like cutting trees down he's uh in a steel mill he's uh driving a truck he's fighting fires in in, in the uh f- the national forests he gets drafted into the into the war in, in uh in 1950 but he doesn't go to korea he ends up staying uh stateside and he becomes a um, lifeguard he's actually in a, an accident where he's in a bomber plane and him and his friend uh who's a pilot took it and they were flying down to san francisco for shore leave and the plane uh, supposedly the story is the, the uh, plane kind of runs out of gas or loses altitude and he they have to ditch in the ocean and they're all right but then they have to swim back and he's like he almost died very crazy so he gets out uh, he, he also at this time his, his army mates are two people we've actually brought up in the last two episodes funny enough uh, because we go all around the, the, the river so to speak where last week we brought up in uh, what did we do last week we did Predator 2 uh, we brought up Adam Twelve, the guy 
Kent McCord was in Predator 2. His partner on Adam-12 is Martin Milner. He is one of Eastwood's old friends from uh, the Army. And then two episodes ago, we brought up uh, on Evil Dead 2, we were talking about shooting in high school gyms, and I brought up a movie called Avalanche, which was a TV movie starring David Jansen, the guy from The Fugitive. He's the other guy that was friends with Eastwood in the Army at the time. He's bunking with these guys, and they're like, what do you want to do with your life? He's like, I don't know. He's like, why don't you try acting like we're doing? He's like, "Ah, I don't know. And then he realizes he needs money. He just got married. You know, he needs to support his family. His wife uh, at the time gets very sick, almost dies of hepatitis. So he's, he's running out of dough. He's like, okay, I'll try acting. He goes, gets a job at Universal as a day player. But uh, it's still the old studio system. So you get hired and you're just doing extra work and you're doing, you know, shitty little movies. He makes his debut in, a, in the horror movie, The Return of the Creature. He does Tarantula. He's the bomber pilot that kills the big spider at the end. Uh, but in 1956, Universal drops him the same day they drop Burt Reynolds. They're both friends, Eastwood and Reynolds, and they tell Eastwood and Burt that they'll never make it in Hollywood and that what, the reason they drop Eastwood is because they think his Adam's apple's too big and his profile shots. He's like, oh, what the fuck? So he still bums around doing, he goes to RKO, does a couple movies. Finally, serendipitously, he's having lunch at some uh, CBS lot and some producer sees him and they're looking at, there was a, a, um, a John Wayne Western with Montgomery Cliff called Red River from like the late, four, maybe 1948. They want to make a show called Rawhide about it. And they're looking for a young guy to play opposite the more experienced guy. So they're like, you know, Eastwood, you look great. Why don't we hire you? He's like, sure. He becomes Rowdy Yates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of he was had a television contract. Yes. He couldn't do, that's why. I, I said all this to get here. So by the time <laughs> Eastwood gets Rawhide, Eastwood's almost 30. And he's playing 10 years younger. He's playing this young guy who's like, you know, funny and experienced, you know, the good-looking guy. So he starts doing this for... Rawhide's on for six... It goes from 1959 to 1966. And I think it's the last show either on TV or on that network that's shot still in black and white. But Eastwood starts getting bored because it's like he's playing the same thing every week. He's playing this guy who's a bumbling, like, oh, you know. So he wants to do other stuff. He wants to strike out and do some stuff. But uh, his contracts, they won't let him get out and go do movies. And he's like, what the hell? And he, he can't make movies in America. Yeah. And um, during his breaks, you know, he has time. He can go do something on the side. And, and people have, prior to this, gone to Italy and done maybe Telly Savall. I forget who, but I watched a movie in the last year that predated Fistful of Dollars. And I was like, oh, wow, look, it's an American actor doing something big in Italy. Can't remember now what it was. But he gets his agent calls and says, hey, do you want to do something in, in, in Italy? Shoot something. And Eastwood's like, well, you know, two, already Charles Bronson's passed on it. Uh, and uh, what do we say? James Colburn maybe he's passed on it. And Eastwood reads the script. And the only reason that he really hangs on to it, one, uh, it could be a good, he's never been to Europe. It could be a good vacation for him and his wife, all expense paid. If the movie ends up bombing, no one in America will ever see it because it'll just stay in Europe and it'll be forgettable and they'll get a good vacation out of it. Two, Eastwood's a, a fan of, you know, jazz music, the arts and stuff. He's an accomplished piano player. He was he liked artful films and he was familiar with Kurosawa, who had done Yojimbo in nineteen sixty one, and he knew that Yojimbo's earlier movie, which was um the Seven Samurai was remade into the Magnificent Seven. Kurosawa's earlier movie. Kurosawa's earlier movie was remade into uh, Seven Samurai, which became the Magnificent Seven, and that gave Steve McQueen his start. That gave uh, uh, James Colburn his start. Charlie Bronson, kind of. So he's like, you know, uh, if this script he's reading at the time, Fistful of Dollars, which was called 
that the Magnificent Stranger is based on Yojimbo, yeah. Koasawa, that might not be a bad thing. Which and is then, he was going to be the Magnificent Stranger. Yeah, and he was the title role, and that's based and he off wasn't, of like this was his first starring. Yeah, role and in, he's, a t- in a movie, and he's not being this clear-cut kid, you know, this bumbling or you know, absent-minded—not absent-minded, but just young, naive kid. He can be kind of, he can invent his own character himself. Uh, he was familiar with Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest that Yojimbo is based on, which uh, ends up being. You, you, don't they ever? They make a couple movies of that, but yeah, you like Last uh, Man Standing. You like Last Man Standing <laughs> by Walter, Walter Hill. Hill. You know, that's that's probably the most faithful of that uh, Red Harvest adaptation. So he's like, what the hell? You know, I can buy my own outfits. He goes to, and he realizes when he gets to Italy for Fistful of Dollars that he's probably the most experienced, you know, Westerner, Hollywood Westerner on set. So they actually use him as kind of a technical advisor how to do stuff. And he, he, he Leone likes him because, uh, you know, he, he's got a great striking figure. He, he's really good looking, but he, he's almost worried he's too much of a pretty boy, so he says, we'll just give him like a beard, five o'clock shadow, uh, you know, uh, dirty him up a lot. And the, the big thing is, too, he wants him to have those cheap cigars. And Eastwood doesn't smoke, but he's like, we want you to have cigars. So in the airport on the way to Spain, Eastwood buys these cigarellos, cuts them in half, and then that becomes his trademark when he flips it from one side of the mouth to the other. So Eastwood goes getting paid five grand for, what, four weeks of... He's like, shit, what the hell? Yeah. I need the money. It was, uh, the f- that first movie was... Uh, 64. Reported, but it was also reportedly a $200,000 budget or $250,000 budget, depending on where you... You know, what information you read. It's also... It's funny to hear him talk about how, the you know, the difference. He liked Leone. Leone was funny. Um was smart even though they couldn't really communicate language wise but uh, he's like and he liked to eat yeah and so like at lo- you know when they take lunch in hollywood you eat for like a half hour maybe hour tops he would break in italy they would break for like two hours drink wine it was like a whole thing really in the relaxed. middle of the day and he's like but the only problem with it, he was like it was great but the only problem was then getting back in the mode to work it took a like ramp up you know you were like working <laughs> in slow motion for a couple hours after lunch um, now, Dion kind of talked a little bit about how you start to see this like prototype of the anti-hero happening in American television. Uh, you know, people point to these spaghetti westerns as like the intro- the real introduction of the anti-hero and like the birth of the modern action hero. And part of what's important is also going on in the '60s is you know not just with America in Vietnam. You know, the 60s is just, in a lot of ways, a turbulent time worldwide. You know, in the late 50s, you get, like, the the, the Cuban Revolution, and then you get Che Guevara in the, into the 60s. Um, obviously, the Cold War is happening. Castro. Yeah, you get the, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the earlier 60s. And Kennedy's assassinated in 63, which kind of is the end of that Eisenhower era into the 60s, and then with like you're saying, Vietnam and yeah. the civil rights movement. But stuff's also happening in Italy in terms of there's just kind of like social and political unrest. Into the late 60s, you know, there starts to be, uh, you know, protests and even terrorist bombings and stuff. But, you know, even though that's after these movies are made, obviously there's a period of time that's leading up to that. Yeah. And so part of the success of the Eastwood anti-hero character that then spawned Django and all these other westerns. I mean, basically, westerns were this huge thing for basically 10 years, all based around this kind of anti hero figure who is 
not necessarily preoccupied with what's right and what's wrong. They might have a code that they go by, but you know, and if, for a few dollars more, which is the movie we're actually covering today, they're bounty hunters, bounty killers. And it's also an, an interesting perception of how Europeans look at the American, where Eastwood thought when he another when he went to do Fistful of Dollars, he's like. He never thought that this the picture would play over in America because he never thought at the in the nineteen sixty three or sixty four when he went and shot it that that character would be believable that antihero because it was so opposite of yeah. what he's playing on TV and what's really happening they hadn't got there yet and that's part of the reason why when Eastwood when these movies finally come out these the, the, he shoots this sixty four fistful of dollars for a few dollars more 65 66 is good bad and the ugly they don't come out over here because there's a lawsuit with yojimbo uh copyright issues until 67 united artists ends up putting them out and they put them out within a year of each other because you can imagine all three of these movies come out within one year and it catapults eastwood because with blake saying the vietnam war there's the turbulent times suddenly there's this anti-hero on on tv it's for American audiences, it's people they grew up with watching this clean-cut person, Rowdy Yates, who's now suddenly very different. He's in a poncho. He's got a beard. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. In Italy, it's kind of kind of like the perception of the American. You know, he comes in. You know, he's he's you know effing some shit up, and he's leaving, and that's the end of it. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just like the stereotypical Western hero. Yeah, the the cowboy in the white hat was not going to resonate no. with Italy or the world, really. But it, the reason why they didn't go that route is because they knew Italian audiences were not going to buy it. You know, they needed... It was also a little bit of space, uh, escapism. It was a little bit of uh, vicarious, you know, living through the characters. Sure. You know, the world was in turmoil. They needed someone who didn't give a shit. And it's also very <laughs> to much connect with. what you got in the in in France in the late 40s with the uh, Philip Marlowe, the private detective, the cop, the, you know, the, what you see in film noir, that character, the guy who has a moral code, but he does dirty things, the Humphrey Bogart kind of a guy, or, you know, where he, he, you know, he's very easily, he'll kill somebody, but at the end of the day, he does have a morality. He will, like he Mickey Spillane, I the jury, spoiler alert at the end, he will like turn his girlfriend in, you know, who he's been banging because he knows she did it, even though she's like, please save me. He's like, no, you know, it's yeah. wrong. So in Fistful of Dollars, you know, as as corrupt as or as the Eastwood character seems because he's playing both sides, there is a morality there because at the end of the day, he does save the, there's, there's a heroine in it. Yeah. You know, so there is a moral code that people do enjoy and they can but identify it's just, with. it's not as clean. Yeah, exactly. It's not as clear. Yeah. It's not as black and white. And it's not as complicated as those earlier 50s, those, they're not really masterpieces. Yeah, yeah, they're not a dealing with, you killed my brother or, you know, this land or that, you know, it's and all, all the, the emergence of the West and the killing of the Indian and all that stuff that they, people were finally starting to like face in the 50s now the interesting one of the interesting things going back to the Italian film industry is um, and maybe there is a little bit of this in that you know originally like Leone for for fistful dollar for fistful dollars is credited as Bob Robertson there's this like Americanization of Italian names in some of these films that are going international now there might be a little bit of trying to appeal to an American audience, but it's actually more about, it's not, it's not as much about 
fooling an American audience as it is about fooling the Italian audience. Oh, so they think it's... Wanting the Italians in these little towns and all these little movie theaters all across the country to think that they're getting an American imported film starring this American star and not... This isn't necessarily an Italian-made movie. (laughs) And it's another... If you watch... I recently revisited uh, Tashiro Mufuni's performances in the Yojimbo and Sinjero and and some of those. If you look at him, it's very much that anti-hero. Eastwood's performance is very taking cues from the... uh, In my personal opinion, of Mufune, uh, of that era. But it's fascinating because... Kurosawa, in a lot of ways, is it's inspired by the American Western. Hence why Yojimbo is a remake of uh, of Red Harvest, which isn't a Western, but it's an American concept. So then they end up re-remaking it. So, yeah, the, those the, the Seven Samurai and those movies are kind of loosely based on the iconic Westerner American hero taking it into their feudal Japan. And then the Italians <laughs> take... The, the or samurai even, or magnificent or, seven, or the Americans even, yeah. and then kind of repurpose it again as yeah. an American and icon. Th- that story, so it, it kind of all feeds into itself. So, so we get the anti-hero prototype again, like kind of the modern action hero. You know, it's not as clear cut, uh, cut and dry, good and bad. You know, sometimes there's you know other things going on as a hero, and then um, you know, as successful, he becomes a cult hero in Italy. And then he becomes this huge icon in, 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 in Europe. And for a few dollars more, by the time that comes out in Italy, I, there's, a, there's a fact or a quote that says that it be, up until for a few dollars more becomes the biggest money-making movie in Italy of all time, foreign from and domestic. Like, from 1965 to like 1970 or 71, for a few dollars more, is the most financially successful movie that Italy ever made. Including... Um, Stuff you know, even brought in, or stuff that they've made domestically, which is a, a huge factor because, as important as a fistful of dollars was, with jump starting what became the spaghetti western genre, um, in a lot of ways, for a few dollars more is the more important film because least to us, well, yeah, because its success was really like it was that's it was more successful. So its success, its success really said this is a viable thing. It was that movie that re- the success of that movie that was like okay, let's put out Django, let's put all these mo- other movies, and they started really churning them out because of that movie. And for a few dollars more is also where like Leone's uh, style and trademark stuff really starts to come into effect. Yeah. So now that we've set the table and we only have about 10 minutes left. <laughs> yeah. Good night, everybody. We're seeing you soon. Let's um, finally jump into this masterpiece. One, one, one last point before we leave the other stuff. We brought up uh, Wagon Train, Ward Bond many times when we talked about Star Trek because that was the prototype of Star Trek or what uh, um, Gene Rottenberry was kind of talking about with the original Star Trek. And then we brought up on, I think it was our... Uh, we did them, the horror movie, sci-fi movie from the fifties. We were talking about uh, James Arness in that because uh, they wanted first John Wayne as um, the Gunsmoke, but John Wayne said, "No, I'll recommend you James Arness," and he got into Gunsmoke. Uh, and I think we brought that up because James Arness was in them, and we covered them. So this is kind of stuff we have talked about a couple times in the past. Um, Nineteen sixty-five for a few dollars more. Good night, everybody.
be seeing you soon. Well, you know, there's some important. Uh, well, you know what? I think Le- you know Leone's an interesting guy. What's the di- and then what's the difference of the spaghetti western? Because the spaghetti western is coined by critics when these movies start coming out in the stateside. They uh, critics laugh him off, and they get. And Eastwood's always had that kind of problem through his years that he gets, you know, shitty reviews from critics and stuff like that. Uh, and that that was a derogatory term put on these movies. These were spaghetti westerns; they yeah. weren't going to last long. Some of the Italian filmmakers really hate the term. They're like, not spaghetti westerns; they're Italian westerns. Yeah. Some of them don't care, you know. Uh, and there's they're different because you look at like. Especially you look at for a few dollars more here where it's like a lot of these movies have a different look. They were shot in Spain. They were shot in uh, Almira, I think it's pronounced, the region of Spain. Uh, And it's very barren compared to like Monument Valley or our look of the West. It kind of looks a lot like America's uh, uh, south of the border in Mexico. It looks like that kind of a look. And in the American Western... Mexico is always represented uh, for us like the you know you're going to get away to Mexico the bandits you're going to you know you you failed you're going to go down to Mexico and start again it's always like you're going to cross the border get away from your problems uh, when you get to these movies these movies look slightly different because it's like these vast barren wastelands they're dry they're different looking a lot of the cities that could be looking sometimes ancient like in for a few dollars more maybe not a lot of windows uh everything you know the people are dirty a lot of them maybe look ethnic like because they're they are spanish or italian in cast they could pass as mexicans so it's this huge different look at even even aside from them being foreign it has this whole different look of I guess this could be the depths of Mexico, the the very scary, you know, wasteland, or the the um, the kind of you know, um, you know, places that are down there, and and it has a very distinct look versus our westerns that I think people end up then clinging on to of their version of Mexico, and it's when you get into the period of revisionist westerns they talk about after these with the American Hang 'Em High and. Sam Peckinpah does in a wild bunch. You start seeing a lot of that aspects being recycled into Hollywood westerns. I'm done. <laughs> uh, one thing I do think is interesting about Leone is that we think of now. We talked uh, on Predator Two. We talked. We mentioned um, Stranger Things. You know, yeah. we talked about you know nostalgia. You yeah. know, uh, not just in podcasting like us, but nostalgia being a big thing in filmmaking. We talked about this with. Maybe in the, probably in the blob, yeah, on Greece, and how like the filmmakers of the time start to make things that they are nostalgic for from their past, like the you know the by the by the eighties, the kids that grew up in the fifties with those sci fi people like Carpenter doing the thing, uh, they they then they make a nostalgic, they go back to like the fi- they make the re- they remake the fifties movies, yeah. And when we did Greece, we're talking about how. You know, there was this big boom of like '50s nostalgia with American Graffiti and and Happy, Happy Days, Days and, and the Greece and early '60s. You know, pre pre the British invasion type stuff. You know, Leone was also a nostalgic filmmaker. Leone wanted to make movies that made audiences feel the way he felt when he was a kid. Yeah. In his mind, he was making fairy tales, he but he was making them. fairy tales for adults. Yeah, and so that's I think an important aspect of Leone's style yeah. is that he is a big kid who's trying to make movie magic yeah. and make audiences, you know, marvel at like the the wonder of cinema and uh with a few, for a few for a few dollars more we start to see 
confidence as a director and starting to, you know, uh, start to explore things that would become trademarks, even though he said, like, he only made seven films in all as a director. But those seven films, for the most part, made a huge impact on cinema, especially yeah. these spaghetti, especially, like, these three. I wonder if you could put them in... You know, you could say Stanley Kubrick, or you could say now Quentin Tarantino, you know, who've made very little but have been prophetic. I wonder if his have been so... I would imagine so the, because you know, the impact, you know, the impact of, you know, people will say good, bad, the ugly, you know, the fact that that the Morricone music... Sure. It's it's just as iconic as anything. It's, it's parody yeah. now. You know, it's so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so uh, important sure. that it's become parody and the way he shot those movies. But this is like where it starts. You know, he starts to for a few dollars more opens. We don't jump into the story. There's like we don't really even get into the story of this movie until twenty minutes in. You know, and also they get when they get um, another another aspect of of these greater Italian. Um, spaghetti westerns is that the civilization they're presenting is kind of like on the decline the world's in chaos you know it's a wild place you know uh people are are, are you know merciless um and when you get for a few dollars more he gets a bigger budget so he's able to add a little more of american things in it to make it look more of like an american western so you get the train you get like you know guys reading the bible you may have like a native american indian extra you know you get the towns are called el paso el paso he makes a town that still stands today so you get a little more stuff that looks more like a traditional american the western the budget at the goes time. from $200,000 for for first few for a fistful of dollars to jumps up to around six hundred thousand dollars for a few dollars more, and Eastwood comes and he, back, and he makes a better deal for himself because he didn't really make any money on a fistful of dollars. Yeah, and there's there's also a problem where he made fistful of dollars with a with a uh, a company called Jolly Films, and uh, they supposedly the lore is they owe them a little more money. And they were refusing to pay him what they owed him unless he did a sequel because he wasn't planning to do a sequel. So then to do a sequel, they so had to like blackmailed into doing yeah, a sequel. And, he, and then he has a dispute with them and he gets other producers and the other I forget who the other producer is, who also is very famous for doing something. Oh, maybe Last Tango in Paris. Um, he makes it with him and that's kind of the joke where they get the title for a few dollars more. It's like it's a pun on the first titles movie but really it's also he wants to get fucking paid. <laughs> but the thing is the clutch is they need to bring Eastwood back to do this because they need him because he was the star of the first one. Meanwhile, cut to Eastwood in America. Eastwood still hasn't seen Fistful of Dollars because it hasn't been released domestically. So he gets a call. He's still doing you know Rowdy Yates Rawhide to like will you come back and he's like well, I haven't even seen the first one yet, so I can't commit to the, you know, without seeing it. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll offer you a shitload of money. I forget what his, his price goes up from, like, was it five grand or 15 grand, the first movie? And, and he goes, well, listen, I want to see the first movie first. So they rush him over an Italian uh, language print because they, they were having a legal dispute about Yojimbo domestically of, of it getting released domestically. So, so he they, gets, didn't, they didn't have an English language print finished yet. So he got a couple friends together and they went to a CBS screening room and he thought it was going to be a joke and he watched the first movie in Italian and, and he was captivated. And all his friends were like, that's really good. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess it seems good. So... He came back and he's like, "Yeah, I'll work with that director again." So they get Eastwood, and then they're looking for to get someone else in there to up the ante. Uh, and they're looking at like, uh, I guess Lee Marvin was the first choice, and he was he 
couldn't. He was doing Cats Baloo. They looked at uh, Henry, Henry Fonda, Charles Bronson, Charles everybody Bronson. that kind of wanted for the first movie. Yeah. They went to again, and again they said but no because this movie had never hadn't been released in America. Yeah, yet. It, they're doing something that that they can't said they can't be done, son. Like they say in Smoking the Bandit, and it's funny because all these people we keep naming, maybe with the exception of Lee Marvin, are people that they go, he goes on working with. Yeah, James Colburn, uh, Jason Robards is in the third one, but uh, Charles Bronson, Charles Bronson, Henry Fonda. So. Uh, uh, once upon a time in the West. Uh, yeah, uh, so they end up. Uh, he he remembers Lee Van Cleef, and Lee Van Cleef is a guy who uh, got his start. Uh, he was an accountant in Jersey, and he got and he wanted to. He got his, his uh, start doing stuff in Jersey, and then he came over to 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 uh, start doing westerns and stuff. Uh, he got his first start in a, in a, uh, the play of Mister Roberts, right? And I have a very weird story where. Uh, According to my family lore on my mother's side, my grandparents, when they were doing the Mr. Roberts play in the early 50s first with before he, Henry Fonda stepped into that role, when they were in the New York, Connecticut area, they needed a, uh, a goat for, for the Mr. Roberts. So somehow my, my mom, the farm that she lived on, they had a cow, they had a goat, they used that goat. I think it was called Bertha. And they were using that goat for a time, and this is a play that Lee Marvin got to start on. And my grandmother used to tell me that, like, she used to tell the people playing sailors, like, please don't figure feed him cigarette butts because that's not good. You know, it's bad for his stomach. They feed him cigarette butts. So when I was little, I used to have eight by tens of Mister Roberts. I didn't understand who they were, you know. And like, <laughs> yeah. you see this goat, and it's because it was the goat that my parent, my grandparents had. But he gets Lee Marvin gets to start. He Van becomes Cleef. a villain. I'm sorry, uh, Lee Van Cleef. Gets a start uh, in 50s. He's in High Noon, I think, is his first movie. He basically plays... A heavy. He plays like the second bad guy from the on the left, basically. In High and, Noon? In most of his yeah, roles. Yeah, in, in the, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is, I think, in 61 or 62. Uh, he's in also a, a third uh, uh, Western. But he, he literally, that's how people know him. They know him from being just this guy And who, because he has a very... Sp- the specific look. Well, when they because in a lot of those movies, he doesn't. He, some of them, he doesn't even have lines. No, he's, he's just, just kind of staying. Yeah, he's just a menacing guy. He's in the gunfight at the OK Corral. But when he when he first is almost gets high noon, I think the director says to him or the producer, "You should get surgery on your your nose." And the, he tells him to like you know politely to screw off. I'm not gonna. But he gets the part anyway. But he becomes huge in TV. He's in a the, I think the Lee Marvin Twilight Zone episode. I might be wrong, but it's a western. But he's in a, a bunch of or a couple Twilight Zones. But he never really had a starring role. So by the time this comes around, he's a he's a, a heavy drinker, maybe even an alcoholic, and he's painting houses, he's a freelance painter. And I guess Leone must have remembered him and they call him and he's like, "Sure, I'll do it." So he ends up being Colonel Mort- Douglas Mortimer in this. It's like there's different stories. They go to like they go to um, Hollywood Leone and his producer hop on a plane. They go to Hollywood looking for him is one of the stories. And they find him, like, coming out of some place. And they approach him in a parking lot is one story. One story is they're at a bar. And they see him at the at the, at the the they're having dinner someplace. And they see him at the bar. And they send somebody over to ask him to come and uh, talk to them. And they, they talk to him in this restaurant. And they're just like, can, do you want to do it? And can you start... F- can you leave on Sunday? And it was like yeah, Friday because <laughs> they were they were getting close, to, and they didn't have a guy locked in to be Eastwood's. So there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of different stories about how they actually approached Lee Van Cleef to do it. But I would imagine if Lee Van 
Ellie Van Cleef, this was probably an amazing opportunity. And sure, why the fuck not? Go to Italy or go to Spain. Yeah. Uh, like, same reason that Eastwood did it. Originally. It was like, I never, you know, maybe he'd never been there. Or maybe it's like, this could be a chance for a vacation. Also, he'd been c- kicking around. And he hadn't started. He was 40 years old at that And he point. hadn't started anything. Like, he yeah. wasn't, didn't have a starring uh, part in anything. This was, I mean, really. He had bills to pay. <laughs> I mean, if you look at really even though Eastwood is thought of as being the star for a few dollars more, really it's about Lee Van Cleef's character. It's like a, really he's kind of the protagonist. And I think that's what makes this character, this movie successful is that you have Eastwood as the no name Joe in fistful of dollars who has no past, no present. you not know, you don't know his history. He's kind of the same in this, but he becomes the spectator and you get a character like Douglas Mortimer, Lee Van Cleef, who, uh, has a past. He living in this past. His past is connected to the the villain, the 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 the, uh, the antagonist in it, and also it's it makes Eastwood's character more relatable because Eastwood's a, you know you get yeah. a little more. It's a little bit like like the Mad Max Fury Road. It's like that movie's not about Mad Max. No, Mad yeah. Max is just there and he's helping out. <laughs> and it's interesting because if you look at Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more, they're clearly set post the Civil War, and then you look at for a few dollars more. That's technically a prequel because that takes uh, place during the Civil War. Good, bad, the ugly. I'm sorry. Good, no, I'm, I say everything wrong all the time. Um, good, the bad, the ugly is technically a prequel to Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More because that's taking place during the Civil War. But the progression of the Eastwood Man with No Name character, the El, El Cigaretto, as they called him in Italy, um, he, is, has a, he actually has a name in this movie, but not in the American print. No, he had. He's. Yeah. But his character becomes more sympathetic by the time he becomes Blondie and, and for Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And people credit his relationship with Lee Van Cleef in this is kind of like what softens that character up. Sure. But yeah, it's more of the first scene like you're saying, getting back to you said the beginning opening when they're on the train and, and you get the opening of this when you see him reading the Bible uh, Lee Van Cleef. It's very you know, you very quickly, he's the bounty hunter too. He, you, you get to humanize what's going on in his struggle and there's a very interesting you know, yeah, well, like Leone's, he takes his time in the beginning here. Does he? Does he not? As he's not worried about jumping right in. You know, we introduce Van Cleef, we introduce Eastwood's character, but we don't really know what's going on. You know, like well, you established we, that there. We introduce them as bounty hunters but doing their we trade, don't, but the movie doesn't really get going until you know twenty minutes in, and this has become something that you know becomes part of Leone's style a little bit, like living in the world for a little while before we, you know, he's not worried about jumping right in. And the first scene establishes Lee Marvin as a badass. And Van Cleef. Sh- I keep saying Lee Marvin. Lee Van Cleef, it establishes him as a badass. You get to see, like, his weaponry, that little thing about, I love the, the you know, the whole, in these movies, the sound of the gun. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sound effect, which is very iconic in the Leone westerns, but also the... You know, the the thing with the range of bullets and all that kind of a thing with the Lee Van Cleef character. And then as soon as Lee Van Cleef brings his bounty in, it's very funny. We had a uh, I used to care, have in, in college this poster, the original Italian poster hanging up. And then I gave it to my roommate, uh, Mike Bram Leroy. And I introduced him to this movie. So when we graduated college, I gave, when he was moving out, I gave him the poster said, take it. You know, now it's part of you. But his joke was when we used to watch this one, when you see Lee Van Cleef take the thing down and go like, you know, somebody else was looking for him. And Lee Van Cleef's like, who it was? He's like, I don't know who, he's na- who he was, but his name was Mango. In this, we used to always say like, I don't know who he was, but his name was Clint Eastwood. And then it comes to like, 
that awesome it's like one of the, the best openings cuts, yeah. of all time the setup of the Eastwood character you get like Eastwood with his wrist strap on he comes in it starts raining and his name in this movie is Manco yeah. which I guess is Spanish for one handed one armed um, and if you it's something I've always picked up on and loved about the opening sequence with Eastwood is when you when he walks into that town, he does all the action only with his left hand. Yeah, it's all one-handed. Because you you don't really notice it, but it's because he's got his right hand on his revolver, his gun. Because it's underneath his poncho, so you don't see it. Yeah, so it's it's so bad. But he's, already, he's ready to pull it at any second. Yeah, so he beats the crap out of the guy he's looking for. These other guys show up, and I love it, too, where it's like, your money, your life, you decide, and then these guys are behind him, and he uses the mirror on the bar, looks, and then he flies around, and it's you know, and that's when he reveals his right arm. It's been on his gun the whole time. Kills everybody. Walks up. The other guy's still moving. He shoots like you know behind him over the shoulder. Gets the guy. Great openings for two iconic guys. And then that's the next step is what who we're looking for is the third guy we start here who is Indio, uh, Jean Maria Volonté, who's I one of the great movie villains possibly of one, all of, time. one of the best. This this portrayal. I mean, he's in. Fistful of Dollars, it confuses people because he's the heavy in Fistful of Dollars. Eastwood's in Fistful of Dollars. So people speculate that uh, Eastwood's character is the same in these three movies, although there was an Italian court case because, like we said, that uh, Leona got into trouble with the Jolly Films producers because he wanted to go make these sequels or whatever with a new producer, so they sued. And the Italian courts have decided, no, the Eastwood character is not the same Joe to this one because even though he has Western traits... It's more of an icon. It's an icon. It's a yeah. he's a fairy tale. It's a, he's a myth. He's a he's a he's a, le- a, a someone of legend like a western is. So you can't yeah. copyright that. But Jean Maria Volonté in this is clearly somebody else because the other guy dies in the first movie. <laughs> yeah. But his character is phenomenal. His, our first appearance. If you if you're keen with music like Blake is, you start already hearing the watch theme. Yeah. You know when you, when they break him out of jail and then he kills and this his whole thing is so amazing. He's got the madness of uh, Cody Jarrett from White Heat. This which is kind of you know the insanity which you don't start you start seeing in characters like. Uh, uh, Alan Arkin and, and as Harry Road Jr. in uh, uh, Wait Until Dark where it's just the psychotically he's daring people like it's it's almost like he knows his soul is damned from his actions of killing in his backstory raping and killing the woman yeah. where he gets to watch he's almost daring people to like kill him like at the beginning when he he Goes after the guy that put him in jail. He 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 takes the family, the the ba- the newborn baby, and the mother outside. Kills them, almost t- one as revenge, and two because he doesn't give two shits. He'll do anything. Yeah. Three. It's he's almost daring this guy to get so mad to kill him, but then he's easily able to to best the guy and kill the guy. But we set up um, amazingly how you know he's wanting to die. Well, yeah. It's, I like, mean, it's like the idea it, of the Joker. There is this. You know, there was a Ricky Gervais series on Netflix uh, recently so it's still there but it and the, the concept of is that like his wife dies of cancer and the concept of the show is he he wanted in, in the beginning like he he's just going to kill himself but then they have a dog yeah so he stays alive to like feed the dog now see you've told me to watch this <laughs> and I haven't watched it because I'm worried that at the end of the series the dog's going to die and uh <laughs> But the idea is that, like, not caring whether you live or die becomes a bit like a superpower. Yeah. Because then you really can do anything because you don't care what happens to you. Like, you, if you're confronted by bad guys, 
Like you'll fight back because you're not afraid of being killed by them. Yeah, you know it's it's a kind of like what's happening with this guy, and Paul Kersey. You see in uh, Down in Death Wish, Charlie Bronson, same thing. You know, it's like you, you become this you can vigilante badass, whatever you yeah, are. Yeah, because like you, if you don't care about your own well being, then you know you'll do anything. So you have this guy, and in- I feel like that's a little bit of what's going on here with Indio. And what's great about his performance, besides Jean Maria Volonté, besides his like. Big theatrical performance is that there's his performance creates a backstory for me as a viewer, maybe not for everybody, that is not there in the script. It's, you know, to me, you watch this, and, you know, obviously now there's going to be tons of spoilers, so spoiler alert. Um, we find out that, you know, on a rainy night, he's viewing this woman and her husband or boyfriend and he breaks in kills the boyfriend and then rapes the the woman and then it's clearly years younger because uh his present day he's he's graying in his beard and his hair but in this flashback that we see which the the rape was actually cut from the censors which was i guess only restored that sequence in the dvd versions i didn't know but He's a little more trim. He's got black hair. He's younger. We don't know what the relationship is. We'd assume that but it's... for me, his performance what's is, the implications? is what gives me context in that, like... So he's he's raping this woman, and she... We see her grab a gun. This is all at the end of the movie is when all this is revealed. But This end of it. But it's important. But since we're talking about him and his performance, she you see her reach and grab a gun, and we think that she's going to kill him, but she ends up shooting herself to put herself out of the misery. And then he takes this watch that she was giving to the other guy, or he was giving to her. It seems weird that he would be giving her a watch with her own picture in it. I, yeah, I think he's giving. I think the 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 husband, whoever it is, to the husband. They're in bed together, and that's the first flashback we see him watching, and then coming and shooting the guy, and then ripping her clothes off. And but then, so he takes this watch, yeah. that plays music, um, and then his performance through the rest of the movie. To me, like all that puts this into context. Like to me, and whether this is this is not in the script, the only reason why he would be as impacted by this is because he loved her. Yeah, and she must have been. So he, they must have had a relationship, or he admired from afar. But they must have had something before this in his mind, or before this, the murder. And then he takes her, and then rather than be with her, she kills herself. I mean, rather than be with him. She opts to kill herself. Or even and kill the, him. She ki- Yeah, it's like, the, what's the implication of why she's killing herself? And then, so it's like, one, he's been rejected by her twice. Two, he lost her. Whatever it is, none of that's in the script. Yeah. I mean, we see the scene, but we don't have any context for that scene. All that is in his performance. For me as a viewer, everything that I glean <laughs> that I just said, all this backstory, the context for all that stuff is the way... Is he plays that character, and it's amazing. It's almost like the setup to the Joker of how he became the way he is. I mean, because the reality of that, if you let it sink in, is that he because like, if he's just an asshole psycho that goes in, kills a guy, and rapes a woman, and she kills herself, he wouldn't give a shit. No, but he, he was watching. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't be, ha- he wouldn't be watching he from the window. Be, in he the wouldn't rain. be haunted by this for yeah. the rest of his life. So he must have either, in his mind, had a relationship with her, or they did, and then now he's watching her, and she's with her husband, a new whatever, and then he goes and kills her and starts having his way with her. She'd rather kill herself than, you know, of course, be raped, but then be with him or kill him. 
so she's dying to be with her lover that he's killed. Yeah. So it's like Blake says, he's been rejected twice, but he's been rejected like the worst way possible. That she'd rather kill herself than let than be with him, be raped by him, what all the or and then she kind of wins because <laughs> she ends up being yeah. with the dead lover. And so he takes this watch, and this watch becomes a very important part of the movie. Now, and an important piece to him. That and to him, but also you know it's in a way a little bit of a MacGuffin because he sets up in that first sequence when he kills the person that got him in jail he says after he kills that guy's wife and baby in this church really fucked up sequence to set him up he's like okay now you're pissed here you know he turns the watch on he goes when the chimes end you know go for your gun and try to shoot me and then you have this amazing sequence where you get the starting of this song yeah. that's iconic but then you have that second verse where it's it's fucking organ. Yeah, Mion, uh, Mar- uh, Maroni, <laughs> Marconi goes, uh, Marcone, Mar- Marconi, Marconi, uh, yeah, Marconi. He goes balls out, and you get like the fucking Phantom yeah. of the Opera, you know, and it's like this. It's it becomes gothic. Well, this know? becomes one of those aspects. Then he kills him. He shoots him. What this? Couple of things about the music. Um, one, you said or you you know when we were just talking about this rape killing scene we see a snippet at the end indicated that we saw a snippet of that earlier in the movie now that comes after scene where uh van cleef and eastwood's characters they're meeting up and they're deciding like maybe we should work together on this yeah. and eastwood asks like you know essentially like you know what like what's your beef or whatever or what's what's up with the watch too and yeah he, and then he goes you know and i've always that line's always stuck with me i'm sorry is the is the question indiscreet He's like no but maybe the answer is yeah and Eastwood's enough to respect that you know now, so the very next scene is we get a little bit of indication about what's going on there now watching it this time and having been obsessed with music yeah. film music for the last five years of my life um i almost wish that scene wasn't there that that flashback scene okay because what happens is over um eastwood uh, over van cleef's character when that question is raised we hear the theme from the watch but not played through the watch played by like a guitar or a, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. we just hear like the 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 mel that melody of the watch yeah but it's not the watch. Yeah. And then there's a instant cut to uh, uh, Volante, Indio. Indio's character, like laying on the bed with the watch. And the music instantly changes clean cut from this instrument playing that theme to the watch playing that theme. And then that goes into the flashback. So it's, it's di- it goes from uh, non-diegetic of the theme over Lee Van Cleef. Which means it's, fr- it's the score from outside the world of the movie. It's the score of the movie. Two music being played within the source music inside the movie. It's the sim- on a simple watch is the simple theme from the watch. And the reason why I'm saying that I wish, almost wish that flashback scene wasn't there is because the music does, the already of- does what we need it, that scene to do. Which is it gives us, it connects, it's saying Van Cleef and Indio are connected. The music is telling us they're connected. We don't need to know why yet. Yeah. They could have taken that flashback scene out there, have the reveal at the end of the movie, and it wouldn't like we wouldn't have missed that scene. It might have been more because, impactful because the music tells us the reason why he's doing this, it's because of this fucking guy. The yeah. music does it. it and it's brilliant. 
Well, it's brilliant how um, Morricone uses the music. Like I said, the first scene when you are revealed to uh, Volante, Volante, uh, his perf- when he's when they break him out of jail, you hear the music. The music's always with him in some sort of uh, cue done with you know either with like a Latin trumpet at the end when they go balls out the sure. <laughs> you know the yeah. guitar the you know and it, and it haunts him just as much and. Um, you start to it, it, then that's when the movie starts to develop that that he Lee Van Cleef's character isn't just a kind of one dimensional bounty hunter trying to get you know he's connected somehow and that's the reason why you realize when uh, if you know the movie well when you watch it again when he first sees the poster after uh, you know he he after Eastwood you, in, they both get introduced they both see that poster of him laughing when he gets broken out of jail. Uh, you you see the gunshots, and then you see this this cut. First, I I've always remembered it as it being cuts to the two of them looking at the post, like they're both they both want it. You know, it's like oh, they're both bounty hunters. They're both going to go, and it's a stylized to show them. Yeah. But it cl- quickly, if I remember correctly, Eastwood's cut out of that, and it's then just l- closer shots on Lee Van Cleef. Yeah, it's like flash cuts of Lee Van eyes. Cleef looking at the eyes of the eyes in the poster, and it's a crazy. The posters him laughing psychotically, uh, uh, Indio. And then there's a, there's an association for the astute viewer there that oh wait a minute there's something more to this yeah, one Lee it's not Cleese, just the ten thousand dollars he's interested in he recognizes him you know uh, and there's a great dichotomy between Eastwood's character and and Van Cleef's in it because Eastwood is thirty five when they shoot this Van Cleef's forty Van Cleef's character he's playing is fifty he calls him the old man he calls him the young kid it's almost kind of like the same thing where you get from um boy <laughs> uh, boy you kind of get from you know him playing the Roddy Yates character on yeah. the show with uh, I think his name's Eric Fleming from from Rawhide but uh they they have a very funny because it becomes there's there's an element of comedy in this movie that really works there's, when it's work and when it's, it's genuinely funny it's good like there's so there there is almost this professionalism between the two which is very funny that they respect each other and you know when Eastwood makes his appearance known to Van Cleef when they get to the town and they realize they're on Eastwood employs this kid to tell him who else is coming into town very much like another western kind of trope um the kid tells him this guy just came into town. Who he's like, Lee Van Cleef over there. You know Lee Van Cleef. This yeah. guy just walked out of the yeah, hotel. You know, you saw him in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and the other movies he was in. Um, so when he, when when they're watching and then they they make the reveal that they're watching each other with binoculars. The next scene, it's like there's this uh, Chinese guy comes in and he starts cleaning out his. Yeah, very yeah. funny. This kind of this like wa- like laundry man washes cleans out his stuff in his hotel room and walks Lee Van Cleef out. And Lee Van Cleef's like, what the fuck? So Lee Van Cleef follows him to outside and Eastwood's waiting for him. Like, take it to the train station. Yeah. And, uh, into the room to the station and he goes ah and he leaves it's right before the scene Blake was just talking about of them coming to a compromise there's this very funny um, oh, dick wagging around yeah dick you know measuring, dick, dick measuring, measuring contest <laughs> but it's done in like a funny um, you know it's like like th- they even have the kids watching from under the, the boardwalk yeah. saying like hey it's just like how we do it where they come out and they look at each other. They size each other step, up. Step on each other's shoes. Yeah, they walk around each other. Then they then they 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 step. They get mud on each other's shoes. Uh, Eastwood, I think, punches uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef, knocks his hat off, and then as he's trying to pick his hat up, you know, he shoots his hat further down the street, uh, put a hole through his hat to the, to the point where he can't. His gun won't make the range anymore. 
That's all. Fuck shit. Lee, Lee, Lee Van Cleef's able to put his hat on, take his fucking gun out, which has the range, yeah. and he's able to shoot Eastwood's hat off his head and then keep it in the air and unload, and you know. And then it's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. you know, let's put our dicks back to back in our pants. And then there's the scene where they they start talking. Hey, look, we're on the same thing. Let's couple, work together. Yeah, a couple of things uh, about that. You know, Leone was an only child who was born to parents who were a little bit later in life. So he was a young kid to parents that were a little bit older. Um, and so there's a thought that these male relationships that are, start to develop with for a few dollars more than we see, uh, you know, than in his movies afterwards, you know, whether it be Good, Bad, the Ugly, um, we see it, uh, this male kind of camaraderie also in Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, Ducky Sucker or yeah. Fistful of Dynamite, how, whatever title you want to call it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's his, it's him kind of like fulfilling this like brother relationship that he never had yeah. as a kid. And so we see like a very specific male on male, you know, platonic love. Yeah. that happens in his movies, especially starting with For a Few Dollars More, that is very that, that appears to be very personal to Leone. And you'll you'll almost get kind of that between Eli Wallach and and Eastwood kind of yeah in, sure in for for a few dollars uh, for Good Bad and the Ugly, even though he does almost try to kill Eastwood out in the desert and yeah. he realizes he needs him. But then there's and then at the end of the movie where Eastwood could leave Lee, uh, Eli Wallach to be hanged but he lets him there is a kind of a you know and it goes back there's a really great western called The War Wagon with um, Michael um, Kurt Douglas John Wayne and maybe even um, uh, what's his face uh, uh, anyway um, but there's a rivalry there and it's the funny movie where like John Wayne's on the run and Kurt Douglas is after him as a bounty hunter but then they become they, they team up to, 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 to rob this wagon and um there's a scene when they both at the same time go shoot two guys down, yeah. and they both they both die, and then they look at each other, and Kurt Russell, Kurt Douglas is like, you know, mine fell first, and then John Wayne's like, mine was taller. Like it's like that funny, sure, yeah. you know, kind of you know of the 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 what do you call that the the macho rivalry, sporting rivalry, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of get that through the whole movie here, where like sure. you know they team up and they decide they're going to put Eastwood on the inside because. Uh, there's a very great scene with Klaus Kinski the, with Lee Van Cleef to, to when he figures out when they're casing the bank they're going to rob uh, why they're here he he he, he kind of starts something with Lee uh, with Klaus Kinski who has a hunchback that you know Klaus Kinski can't finish because uh, they're on a job so it's the end of the movie when they when they go to that town the uh, Aqua Caliente. And, you know, all of a sudden Lee Van Cleef's there and he's just like fuck you're here too you know like I Which thought I got rid of you. Which is also funny because yeah. there's the term that in itself is a joke. They're going to Aqua Caliente, which means hot water. Mm-hmm. And that's like an idiom, like you're in hot water. <laughs> yeah, they're in hot water, you know. A <laughs> uh, couple of things I want to say uh, about the, st- well, before we, g- just two things I want to say about the score before we sure. go on is, you know, I alluded earlier that to me there's some things about uh, For a Few Dollars More that are kind of prototype for Once Upon a Time in the West. The music is one of them. This idea of having this device that's source music within the movie, but also part of the score is kind of echoed in Once Upon a Time in the West with Charles Bronson's harmonica character. He plays the harmonica, and then that harmonica sound becomes part of the overall score. It's his personal theme, which is also the idea of, there's more to go into this idea of having characters with specific themes, comes from Italian opera. 
way before and film. Leone has a huge. He, these are almost uh, he has like an operatic soul, Leone. So he's making these into these uh, Western operas. But even th- that becomes a huge theme in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, where uh, you know Henry Fonda has this awesome rock and guitar theme. Uh, Charlie Bronson has a. Uh, harmonica sort of uh, theme that he even kind of plays out of his own mouth yeah. and then you even have Jason Robarts has this kind of like more of a bumbling kind of a theme yeah. with Claudette. but even the girl oh, has that big sweeping uh, yeah she has this this, this uh, big sweeping beautiful orchestral theme which is like when she comes in once upon a time she shows up she gets off the train and she gets Claudia, on her car uh, Claude, Claude, Claudia uh, Cardinelli you know, when, she, when the camera comes up over the train station sure. and reveals her in the town. Um, so there's just let him slap your ass. <laughs> That's what he says. There. Just give it to him at the end. Uh, yeah. So this idea of the music sure. themes representing the way, people's, but also it being used within the film and without the film. And the other thing that, you know, this is more trivial, but interesting and, and something that I actually happened to learn while preparing uh, my next episode of cuts from the crypt this other podcast to do, which is about horror film music, is that uh, there is a guitar player named Alessandro Alessandroni, who is who plays a lot of the guitars in Morricone's music, especially in these westerns. But he's also the guy that does the whistling. Okay, he's the whistler in Morricone. You know, these themes have, a, especially this one, has a very specific whistling sound and so this Alessandroni uh, is the guy who does the whistling he plays guitar but he also went on to compose music on his own he did one of my favorite spaghetti westerns a movie called Johnny Hamlet he scored that movie but he also did some Italian horror movies including uh, The Devil's Nightmare and Killer Nun yeah um, so a little shout out to Alessandroni who passed away a couple of years ago but the, I actually learned that I knew of him but I didn't really I didn't know that he was the guy that whistled in all those Morricone scores until I was researching stuff while I was doing this other podcast that I do and uh, you know it's something that might be overlooked too the very first scene of this movie is another brilliant play for the astute watcher or viewer to understand what's happening right before the credits you hear just this person whistling and taking his time and out in the distance you just see this guy on a horse and it's again playing with that idea of the weaponry and the technology uh, you know and you come to find out after repeated viewings it's the Eastwood character waiting there for his bounty to come in range of his rifle so he's like whistling and then he shoots the guy off the horse and the guy dies and then that's when you get the and you have the credits come up. And, and to me, this is, you know, Fistful of Dollars has a good theme. Uh, good and the Bad and the Ugly has the iconic theme. But to me, this is the best. I love the music. You know, the music. I mean, the That's watch, the... Even the... Um, well, then the uh, trumpet at the end that you were yeah, saying the earlier. Yeah, the trumpet, the, you know, yeah. When, when, and you have, like, the... <laughs> and even, like, in the... Um, <laughs> sorry. Doing a little acapella. Uh, even when you get to the... the uh, the doom, 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 which is also another theme of the watch. But even when you get to the uh, the the sequences, the dream sequences, when they're alluding to the flashback, even that that crazy oh, sure, music, yeah. and that's great. You know, there's a, there's a lot Giallo of stuff horror. that's almost horrorish. Yeah, you know that stuff. Some of the organ stuff you were talking about earlier. There's also a scene uh, involving the. I think it's the scene where uh, Indio is going to go look at the trunk. And reveal that the mu- that the money's not in the trunk. Oh, the way the piano's playing there sure. is something that I don't know if they did it purposely or, you know, 
or or ripped it off or was an homage, but there's something the piano's doing there that you hear in Goblin's yeah. stuff later in Profundo Rosso, about well, ten years later. And, that, and, like and that's the, a great scene too, because when he when at the end of the movie when they're going to get the loot that they stole and they open the trunk and they realize the trunk is gone because Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef had taken the money and re- hid it. They leave in there his his poster, and all of a sudden you get the. It's like Sorcerer. When we did Sorcerer, at the end of Sorcerer, when that guy, you know, it's a fucking Rorschach losing his mind. It's one of my favorite sequences yeah, in cinema yeah. history. And that guy's bleeding out. He's like, I can't go. You go to Monago without me. And then all of a sudden, he hears the guy start laughing because he's gone crazy. And he looks down, and the guy's been fucking, the guy's dead. You know, <laughs> the guy's like the color of the, of the yeah. interior of the car looking up at him, but he's hearing the laugh. To me, that was when, when, when uh, Volonté opens the, the, the trunk and he looks at himself and he hears the laugh. It's his own laugh. Yeah. And he starts freaking out. And that other guy who's with him, who I always equate to James Caan, he's like a poor man, James <laughs> Caan. I can see that. Or like a, if you combined Roy Scheider and, and James, James Caan, Caan they, they had a and kid. made it extra Italian. <laughs> yeah, that, it's this guy. <laughs> That's that right-hand guy that ends up being the last one killed. You know, uh, it, it's 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 amazing cinema of pieces of cinema magic here. I think his name might be uh, Luigi Pistilli, maybe possibly. Yeah, and and it's just an, another thing to, to to touch on as we start yeah, heading down the road. We're running out of time. Uh, yeah, because my mom she told me she's going to be here by a certain time to pick us up. Um, the Lee Van Cleef character. I think it's important that when we talk about the having a bigger budget in the second one and bringing, say, more American ideas in it to make it more little than identifiable as an American Western, like, you know, big saloons, saloon girls, you know, ass slapping guys as they're walking by, trains, the, the technology that's coming in. You also get that idea of, they say, Colonel Mortimer is this very iconic, legendary colonel from the civil war from the carolinas he was the best shot in the carolinas and it kind of links you to the stuff we talk about in the beguiled which is that gothic southern gothic history of he maybe was from you get the hints of you know they don't say this literally but you can extrapolate that maybe he's from like a uh, aristocratical family you know because of the watch and you know and his sister proper southern gentleman exactly so you have that whole idea of the the gothic uh, you know what's going on, and who knows? You know, is it you know is it incest? Like we talked about in the beguiled with the ideas of those old, old those gothic westerns from back in the day. You know that idea. Or, there's also like his arsenal. It's very like almost James Bond, very futuristic. Yeah, you know he's got you know, different he's got ranges, different, different kinds, you know, guns for different things, different uh, barrel lengths, and then he's got that little. The little uh, stock, stock that he puts on the, the, the on the pistol, yeah. So he can get a little, he can because it has a little farther range. He can stabilize it. He's got a Dillinger that he, a smaller gun that he kills. Um, uh, 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 uh what's his uh, Klaus Kinski with at the end that he yeah. doesn't go for his other gun. Klaus Kinski, great. The face twitch that he does. Oh, it's so good. And he's a guy, an example of this was a a Italian, Spanish, and German production shot in Spain. Uh, and they grabbed Klaus Kinski because of the German side of it. You know, Klaus Kinski comes in here, and it's a great little part of him uh, at the time. And they uh, entertained somebody else uh, as I forget who they who did they say they wanted to try to get as him that they couldn't get I as the as the that I don't know. Yeah. But he was the German representative. There was one of the henchmen uh, actor named uh, Aldo Sabrell, who was a Spanish actor. Uh, so you know, was peppering different uh, these different regions into the film, so that they, you know, what we were saying before, uh, you know, more just on Leone's style. You know, we start to hear, 
you know, not just the taking the time at the beginning, but um, which, you know, all that opening is like pure cinema, cinematic storytelling. Um, but then we have uh, the big circle duel at the end. That's, you know, that becomes a Leone trademark that you see at the end of for a few dollars more. Yeah. I'm sorry. At the end of Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. yeah. That, but that, that happens here. That happens here first. It ha- then happens in uh, Good, Bad, the Ugly. These, you know, uh, close-up shots, not just like the th- what we think of during the during the gunfight, but just throughout the movie, these close-ups with, a, you know, a character on one side of the frame and something happening in the background, you know, on the other side of the frame. We see this a lot during, like, the bank robbery scene. That becomes a Leone trademark. That starts to kind of come up here uh like i said the um the music the way the music is used becomes a bit of a trademark happens again in one spot time in the west and also what the motivation a lot of the you know lee Lee van cleef's motivation throughout this is revealed that the woman that he raped and who committed suicide was his sister uh, in Once Upon a Time in the West, we find out that the motivation for Charles Bronson's character, if I'm not mistaken, was his brother. So it's like revenge on the heavy of the movie is also, you know, it's a sibling, and the it, death and, of and a sibling revenge. This, this is done in that exploitative piece of all, um, Sam Raimi's um, Quick and the Dead. Quick and the Dead, which was... It, if I, rem- I haven't seen that movie since the first time. It's Yeah, but it is it Gary, uh, Gary Sinise. Sinise, right? But then we also have a little bit, you know, so much of Once Upon a Time in the West is revolves around the introduction of the railroad to the West. Technology. But yeah. we have a little bit in a, com- in a very f- hilarious scene with Eastwood going to the old guy played by Joseph Egger. Oh. And he's, he, lives next, to, it, yeah, he lives next to the railroad. They're both trying to figure out who the other guy is before they, they figure, it's, uh, you know, it's Eastwood trying to figure out who Lee Van Cleef is and he gets his backstory. But we do get this little, he goes the, as hermit. The way this introduction <laughs> yeah. of, the, of the railroad is affecting Because this, this nutty guy who lived out by himself, he's, you know, he's, I wanted to buy my property, but I wouldn't sell yeah, it. I said, that's bullshit because he's like the local, they call him profit. And then, you know, at one point, everything starts shaking because they've literally built the, the train station right next to his house um i guess if we bounce around a little bit what ifs i said it was henry silva they were looking for maybe casting as um as uh the hunchback jack palance was up maybe for colonel mortimer that could see maybe jack palance playing him in there um a great movie for uh if you if you want to watch Jean Maria Volante or Volante is a, a classic called Christ Stopped at Eboli, mm-hmm. and it's a movie about this city that's a real city Eboli up in, in the mountains. That I think in the past ten years was maybe really hurt by one of those crazy earthquakes they had. Yeah, but it's it's about his character going up there in modern times in the seventies or whenever they shot it in the eighties and having this you know story up there because it's an idea that when Christ was alive Christ didn't even he, he didn't go he stopped he didn't go up to this town or whatever great movie for him well, well on one note of Volante uh, uh, which we're talking about he um, La Sucre Rouge too well he, well, he, he that's that we brought that up in what movie recently that's the real famous French bank robbing movie yeah I don't remember what movie but that was that. maybe for John Wick Possibly, but probably. he's in that. He's he's mustacheless, so I don't trust him. But he's in that movie. <laughs> well, Big what's part. interesting about him is, and I, and I don't know, I don't remember if this story is based on for a uh, fistful of dollars or for a few dollars more. But apparently, there was some tension between him and Leone on set because uh, he was so theatrical in his performance and so over the top, uh, and wouldn't tone it down for Leone, so that Leone started doing tons of takes 
of everything with him, trying to tire him out so that he could get one towards the end uh, of doing like, you know, 20, 30 takes that was a little bit more relaxed, trying to tire this crazy actor out. Uh, That's stuff where you hear with them, Georgie Scott on Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Where Kubrick's like, he's playing it straight. Kubrick's like, give me just a wild one. Yeah. And he's like, okay. And that would be the take he'd use. But, uh, so, but part of that frustration apparently is what uh, made Volunteer not want to do too many westerns anymore. And he was uh, he was very left wing and very political. And so he actually reinvented himself as a political as an actor in, in political films. After this, there's another spaghetti western though that's more of a political. I forget something about like uh, I forget the title. Something about the shot for the general, yeah. or something that was. The filmmaker says it's not a spaghetti. It's not a Western. It's a political film about this yeah. Mexican Yeah, revolution. he was very iconic, and he was like almost like a James Dean sex symbol in Italy, but he was very left-wing in his politics and was talk, was getting very um, vocal about stuff. And then and so he, that might have almost typecast him or people were feared to use him. But he also decided to start steering away from some of this more exploitive, uh, the Westerns, which were popular basically for about 10 years from 65 to about the mid 70s and start concentrating on more political films yeah um let's see where where how can we start wrapping this up so um everything else uh, i love the idea of the plot with the with the the little you know the whole mcguffin i mean the other mcguffin with the bank you know the, the it's vault fantastic. In the, in the i mean carpet that, and maybe the from maybe from today's standards you could watch it and be like eh, maybe it's a little bit long uh, only because we're so used to a different style of. Well, if they st- think this is long. They shouldn't watch Good, Bad, and the Ugly. <laughs> it's very tight. But I don't. For me, I don't feel that way. I I love it. It's a it's a great. It's a simple story, but an effective story. I do. I've recited this story on a previous episode. I don't know which one, but since we're actually covering this movie, I went and I saw this movie at Lincoln Center, uh, screening at Lincoln Center on an after a weekday afternoon. Wasn't very crowded. Many years ago. Many uh, moons. Yeah, at least five, maybe more. Um, so I'm watching this movie because I went to. It's one of my favorite movies, so I, I thought like, I'm going to go see a 35 millimeter print of this fucking movie. So uh, that's one of the benefits of living <laughs> in a place like New York City. So I go to see it. Fairly empty crowd, but sitting kind of right behind me to my, you know, diagonally right behind me to my left. So not the seat behind me, but one or two over behind me. There's this guy with this woman, and he's kind of loud. And I'm watching this movie, and it's not like he's talking to her about something else. He's kind of like talking to the screen. He's finding things really funny, and he's very, you know, he's got a loud laugh. Is it my dad? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, there's part of me that's like, this is a little bit annoying, but at least, like, it's that because he's into the movie. You know, it's not like he's on his phone having a conversation. So, like, I, you know, it doesn't bother me enough to get up and move. But it is noticeable. And when this kind of thing happens, there's always this, I think there's this curiosity where, like, you want to see who the fuck this guy is. You know, like, you said, I've just watched, like, two, two hours of this movie with this guy's commentary about the movie behind me. <laughs> I'm like, I wonder, who the fuck is this guy? So when the who mov- the fuck is this fucking guy? So <laughs> the movie's done. You know, I make a point to get up and, when I'm putting my coat on, to look. And it was Tom Wolpat from the Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> Tom Wolpat? <laughs> How's Tom Wolpat doing there? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he was in a play on Broadway at the time. And you he said, is. Tom Wolpat, what you talking about all this stuff for? I was like, Tom Wolpat, you know, you're I, know crazy. I know you're just a good old boy. <laughs> you never do never no mean no harm. Never mean no harm. Come on. <laughs> trying to watch a movie here. So Making was, your way any way you know how. <laughs> just a little bit more than the law will allow, Tom Wolpat. <laughs> so that was my... 
I finally got to see this movie, but it was wasn't ruined by Tom Wopat, but it was pretty close to ruined by Tom. That's Wopat. pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, script in nine days. They wrote the thing, and then Leone took it to another friend in the script docker. Uh, b- uh, banged it up. Yeah, a him more. and uh, Leone and uh, Luciano uh, Vincenzoni. <laughs> Yeah, uh, wrote it, and then he took it to Sergio Donati to uh, for some rewrites. Now uh, we have Vin- not Vincenzoni uh, went on to write with Leone the Good, Bad, the Ugly, and uh, Fistful of Dynamite, aka Ducky Sucker, and Donati went on to write Once Upon a Time in the West, and also Fistful of Dynamite, or uh, aka you're gonna Ducky Sucker, or aka Ducky Sucker. I only both, is- <laughs> both both Vincenzoni and Donati have story credit. On Arnold Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal. Because it's probably Dino Dito Rentis, I bet, right? Maybe something like that? Yeah. You know? um, I think they don't have they didn't they don't have screenplay credit, but they have story credit. We have not done any Italian impressions this whole cast. So probably well, I did my, my, my grandfather. Yeah, you did, did your yeah, you did to your <laughs> grandfather. Okay, good boss. Um I've always known the movie as Fistful of Dynamite, but then now I see it when we looked up all the stuff here. It's yeah. only uh, as AKA uh, Ducks, Ducky Sucker. I always knew it as Ducky Sucker only because I heard that, and I think that's such a great name. Yeah, and it's <laughs> so I always called Ducky Sucker, and that's funny because it's it's Charles, it's James Colburn playing a Irish revolutionary, and then you have Rod Stagger playing basically. A Mexican character version of Eli Wallach, yeah, uh, early Tony Montana, <laughs> you know, kind of a character, and then uh, Henry Fonda is in great, great character in Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, plays against type, yeah, uh, one of the most iconic bad guys of all time. He goes on, but not quite as good as, as John, <laughs> as John Marie Volante, <laughs> but he goes on to do um, one other movie. My name is Nobody. With um, Terrence Hill and and uh, Leone, um, Ter- yeah, Terrence Hill was you know after uh, what's his name uh, Eastwood. Well, uh, you know, post Eastwood, we get um, Franco Nero. Oh yeah, of course, Franco who, Nero, who plays Django, yeah. and then Franco with Nero, the, with beca- the man with the coffin, and then Franco Nero becomes like the big because Eastwood only does till Good, Bad, the Ugly, yeah, and then. They need, you know, they need another pretty boy, and so Django is Franco Nero, and then Franco Nero becomes a huge star yeah. in these spaghetti westerns, and then Franco Nero ends up then going to Hollywood. So they need someone to replace. Uh, I think he shows Franco Nero, Die Hard too, right? He's the Colonel, maybe. That yeah, he's in, out of prison. he's in Die Hard, and too. then Terrence Hill shows up with the other guy, that big guy, and they start doing those weird comedies where it's the the bigger guy. And I think that's Terrence Hill. Yeah, well, Terrence Hill becomes. The replacement, and he... He's in... I think he might be even in one of the Django. There's, they, they mark it. They make him... They take a picture of him, and they mark... A, they want to make another Western, so they take a picture of him and make him look as much like Frank O'Neill in the picture as possible. And they get that movie greenlit because... He looks like... They look at the picture, and they don't know that it's not Frank O'Neill um, <laughs> in the movie. But he then takes up... And then Frank O'Neill ends up coming back to some of the... What they call the Twilight Spaghetti Westerns in the in the mid-70s. It isn't the... But uh, those are the basic, like Eastwood, Narrow, and Terrence. What's the Ernest Borgnine movie? Co- something Cop. Everyone loves... Where it's the, it's like the superhero movie where the guy gets powers. I think that's... It's an it's a Italian movie. It's called Super Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Hot... It's maybe Hot... Hot Fuzz is with... Uh, so it's Super Fuzz. Simon... Peg. Yeah, Super Fuzz is this Ernest Borgnine movie that they shot in Florida and Italy, but I think it's Terrence Howard where he gets like 
like something he's a cop and something blows up near him and he's a yeah. motorcycle cop and then he gets superpowers he can float around um so this movie ends up coming out it's like we said uh eastwood an, uh, another interesting fact about him is that he was going to do um he was cast as Two Face in the Batman series. He was going to be Two Face on Batman sixty six, but the show was canceled before they got to film his episode. So he ends up coming back, and because when these movies come out back to back in sixty seven, uh, within a year of each other, he because of that clout, he's able to take his money. He does uh, the revisionist that period of westerns. He does Hang 'Em High with Pat Hingle, who we just brought up of <laughs> two weeks ago, too. Yeah. Um, and Bruce Dern's in that, too. Who I, I don't know if we don't bring up, but we always talk about Bruce. Tom, I love Bruce Dern. Yeah, well, Bruce Dern is in... Uh, He's in a crap old these fucker, fucker. He's in the, the Cowboys. He kills yeah. uh, John Wayne. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, this is where Eastwood gets his clout, and then he makes Malpaso, the production company, and then this is like how he's able to start choosing his roles like he brings Dirty Harry to Warner Brothers, and you know it's interesting because of Eastwood's popularity, he's able to uh, logistically kind of curtail his his persona and his fame by his boss, box box office success because he starts doing um, genres that are really uh, classic ones for Americans, like he the western, the country music, uh, the country. The Western comedy, the country Western comedy, like Any Which Way You Can, or like yeah. Paint Your Wagon, all that, or war films, or the detective story. He stays with the the tried and true Americana, mm-hmm. atypical genres, and that really becomes where his fame is. And, um, you know, this goes into the 70s, and, I, you know, there's a decline in the American Western, I guess you could say, into the 70s and 80s, and you get like Silverado or Pale Rider in the mid-80s. Uh, but they kind of fall by the wayside until like Unforgiven and then there's a revitalization and then now people say the westerns are still out but for the past 20 years I'd say once or twice a year you get a pretty good you know yeah. you know the the assassination of Jesse James Open Range uh, the proposition that you showed me uh, you know the the, the remake of um, freaking True Grit well you get then you get like Django Unchained Django Unchained the Hateful Eight Hateful Eight Buster Scruggs the Ballad of Buster Scruggs which just came out the second story that's in there the James Franco story I think it's the second story there's a lot of elements that point to the spaghetti westerns because when he goes to rob the bank I think on the bank it's called Tucumcari and Tucumcari is the town at the beginning Lee yeah. Van Cleef is going to is this, uh, is this Tucumcari and he stops and he gets it? off yeah this you know that's that's on the bank and I think if he when James Franco walks into the bank if you look screen left I think you could see the cabinet from this movie like yeah. you know it's supposed to be where the guy's like pan shot you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I, so there's that specifically the that story is uh, i think is a straight homage to the Sergio Leone westerns um there was a funny story that i heard that uh and it probably goes back to when leone sent uh, uh the italian print to a fistful of dollars to for eastwood to watch and that if you watch his performance in fistful of dollars he plays it, you know, a little bit. The way he talks is a little bit faster. But apparently, allegedly, when he watched the Italian uh, version of it, the guy who dubbed his voice talked a little bit slower, and that's he, it and, helped him. And he liked that, and so he starts talking that way. He starts giving a little bit of a slower delivery, a little bit of a grittier delivery, and for a few dollars more, based on how he heard the Italian guy 
do his character. Well, you know, <laughs> which then becomes kind of the Eastwood persona. Well, yeah, to touch on that Eastwood persona very early, you know, basically audiences, cinema audiences are first introduced to him through Fistful of Dollars, even though he had bit parts in other movies, Francis the Mule and stuff. You for a few dollars more, you start seeing the comedy where him, you know, at the beginning, the first fistful of dollars, where he's like, "I need four coffins." My mistake, you know, three. He has that joke. There's a couple jokes, yeah. But in this movie, you start getting, you know, the guy that ends up saying like, "Man has no limitations." Do you feel lucky? Dying ain't much of a living, boy. Make my day. That all comes out of here with him saying like at the end of this movie where he's like, "I love the idea when when you have the big epic showdown of when you know." uh it's it's Indio and and Lee Van Cleef and he's you know and it looks like Lee Van Cleef's about to, to to not make it and then the the watch slows down suddenly the the music picks up again it's because Eastwood has the watch and he's got the rifle indicating back to the poster of I loved it as a kid and then he's like we're gonna do it fairly you know now now we do it then there's the with a big trumpet and then you know he beats him in the gunfight Indio dies and. Lee Van Cleef's like, okay, you know, I'm done. You can have the money. I don't need it. This is what I wanted. Yeah. Maybe in the future we'll be a partner again. And you have, little do we know, East was been picking all the bodies up. <laughs> yeah, he's ready he's to go. Take yeah, but it's, he's also got to go get the guys that he left yeah. at the campfire. <laughs> but it's funny. He's like, he, you know, he's um, he's all ready to go. He's counting the money up, and he's counting. And the one guy, the poor man's James Caan slash uh, Roy Scheider, is still alive, who's been mortally wounded. Yeah, he's hiding. And he's was like 40, 30, 20, 20. He's like, and then he realizes he turns around, and shoots that guy dead, and then Lee Van Cleef's like, you know, any tr- any problems, boy? He's like, no, I thought I had problems with my my adding, but I'm all right, you know. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then you know he leaves. He's got all the dead bodies, and he stops at the tree, grabs the money. So now he's going to be getting. He's bringing the stolen loot back, so he's getting the commission for bringing the money back. Yeah. So he's loaded. But you start seeing that smart ass, you know, the the you know, sure. coming right out of this. Of course, movie. you know, this becomes this relationship. Then is the inspiration for the way Kurt Russell plays Snake Plissken because they cast Lee Van Cleef <laughs> yeah. as like so he starts doing everything as, as a I foil would. for him and, the, and so he starts to deliver he, so Snake Plissken Very takes East-Widdish. on this Eastwoodish you know uh, persona and then you see in the third movie for a few dollars uh, for good and bad and the ugly Lee Van Cleef for comes back bad, for the good and the bad and the ugly <laughs> Lee Van Cleef comes back as Angel Eyes and he becomes this other guy where I'd have to watch that again because I haven't seen that in years. But I wonder if there's a way to extrapolate if he's the same character and now he's I don't know because he's so evil on that he's a little more bad at he's a, yeah. he's the villain uh, you know uh, if he's the same character and they know each other as uh, you know Blondie Eastwood versus Angel Eyes which is Lee Mango Mango um, so you know this movie comes out and like I said you know Eastwood cleverly does a couple movies at that point I mean he does. Hang him high, that Western. But the next movie he does is Coogan's Bluff, which is, I think, his first modern movie. And that's like a, a, a Western in New York City kind of time. But then that's where he meets Don Siegel and Lalo Schiffer for the first time. So very quickly, yeah. that's where you see you could pick up Eastwood's trail of what he starts doing into the and 70s. And he was asked to be in Once Upon a Time in the West, but he turned it down. Well, it, there's, a, there's a very interesting rumor, which I don't know if it's true, but they were at, originally, if you look at the, at the beginning of the movie, the introduction of the Charles Bronson character, you have Woody Strode, the African-American gentleman, and you have Jack Elam waiting there for the guy to get off the train. Mm-hmm. There might be a third guy, too. The story, the urban legend is supposedly that uh, uh, Leone went to Eli Wallach, Lee Van Cleef, and Eastwood. Went him to play those. Went them to play those characters as cameos at the beginning. That you know that it would be the three of them waiting for the train for Bronson to get off, and Bronson dispatches of them all. But Which is also allegedly 
that opening trade sequence allegedly that was uh that part was was come up with and kind of written by Dario Argento. Yes, and then we've talked about that in the in the Argento cast where that that kind of where he got his kind of start. Because uh, he actually wrote a bunch of spaghetti westerns during that time period. He was a, he was a film critic, and then he started writing films. And he wrote a there's a handful of them. You can find them on DVD and stuff of ones that were written by Argento, but they're not necessarily have the Argento flair. He didn't direct them, and he was just a writer for hire. For yeah, those. But it's interesting where you see his original um, where he ends up being. We all know where Eastwood goes with his career, but I didn't know you have uh, you know into the 70s Leone. He passes on The Godfather because he had an idea of wanting to do a movie off a novel he loved called The Hoods by a former mobster, Harry Gray, about New York City Jewish gangsters in the 20s and 30s. And that what ends up becoming Once Upon a Time in America in 1984 with Robert De Niro and James Woods, which I have to revisit again because the cut I saw was very cut up originally. I guess they took, especially that movie, the, the American distributor took it recut the crap out of it and it didn't do as well over here but it did gangbusters overseas because it was the original international cut yeah it has now been since released as in the original international cut so i'm wondering if it's much better because i remember at the ending suddenly like you know james if i remember somebody's dead in a garbage truck goes by i'm like what the fuck what? <laughs> you know it's like you know it's really just I, you know i don't you know because they're cutting shit out of it um but he goes on. That ends up being his last movie, Leone's, in 1984. But he has an idea to make another Western. He wanted to do um, a, Dion, a, Don Quixote, a Don Quixote movie. A Dion Quixote. A Dion Quixote movie. <laughs> a Don Quixote film uh, w- with Clint Eastwood as Don Quixote and uh, Lee, Eli Wallach as, uh, um, as pans in it, but that didn't play out. He was thinking of doing a movie on Colt the Gun, which would be similar to Anthony Mann, the brilliant Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart Western, Winchester 73, but he abandons that idea, and the last project he's working on before he dies is like a, an Americanized Western, his last Western. It would have been a, pl- a movie called A Place Only Mary Knows, and he was looking to get Mickey Rourke and Richard Gere in it to be a uh, Civil War kind of piece. Yeah. Uh, similar to like uh, the short stories he loved by like Andros Pierce who wrote Occurrence in Owl Creek Bridge and uh, Margaret Mitchell and some other stuff but um, it wasn't revealed until 2004 uh, Leone's son Andrea he released the uh, full screenplay in a Italian cinema magazine called uh, Chiac C-I-A-K so the, the, the screenplay so that would have been awesome seeing him do that that movie yeah. but um yeah, you know this this becomes so iconic, and for me, I I feel it's it's weird because it's so monumental, instrumental, but uh, it always gets overlooked. It's always fistful of dollars yeah, or it's the, that's, a good it's the middle child. Yeah, and it's sad because I think it's in my personal opinion, it has a lot more going on than either movie. Either movies, other movies yeah, are awesome. Not to disparage the other movies, not at all, because we like those. We love those yeah. too, but. I you know th- I agree in that this one is the the most interesting to me. I I love the relationship between him and Van Cleef. I love uh, Volante's sleeps with his eyes open. How crazy is that? Remember that? He <laughs> takes a cigar out of first, his mouth. First major first uh, major character in a major motion picture who smokes dope. Yeah. Smokes marijuana, although we don't know actually what's in that. Uh, those little like? cigarellos that he's, those little rolled cigarettes that he's volunt- smoking. Uh, Volante, Volante. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's just so good. In, I mean, it's, he is, he's remarkably 
unhinged, scary, and it works. And to me, it's really like when we were dissecting Nicholson's Joker. It's like he could literally be yeah. that nut that you see end up being, you know, in tons of, you know, villain performances going on. So I don't know if he gets his due in that realm of villainy. Well, you know, the other thing that really works about his performance is Van Cleef and Eastwood are so understated. And he's so over the top. You know, like, almost, like, even the, you know, they almost, almost no inflection even in the way they deliver the yeah. dialogue. So the fact that he's so over the top, uh, just, it's, it's such a contrast it that just badassery. works, works so well yeah. against, uh, you know, the rest of the movie that we're watching. You know, lastly, um, now, as I'm getting older, you know, we have these, these great channels now that are on TV. And, like, I, I watch a lot of my television uh, over, the inter- uh, over the antenna. So I get the stuff, and there's, uh, and there's a channel called Grit, which is a 24-hour Western channel. Yeah. And they play a lot of these early 50s B-picture Westerns. And I find it so almost um, not rewarding, but like, uh, I don't know what the word is, like, uh, like safe or comforting when I put them on. Because to me, it's like I've never heard of these Westerns. But there's hundreds or thousands know, like of them. Said, like I said, before 1960, roughly 40% of all Hollywood pictures were Westerns. Were Westerns. And it's so amazing. I'll turn this movie on. And I find it like a level of comfort because to me, it's like old Hollywood in that era to me is like, it's like if it's a big theater troupe putting on different plays. So like when you turn a Western on, you recognize a half a dozen people. Sure. Oh, it's like James you, Gleason. It's or fucking... Or even DeForest Kelly from DeForest Star Trek. Ke- it's, yeah, exactly. It's DeForest <laughs> Kelly. It's Jackie Lamb. It's uh, Ernie Borgnine. It's, you know, uh, fucking... Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Rudolph. Um, the real iconic... Um, here, uh, what's his name? Robert, not Robert Rudolph. But like Robert Ryan's in these. Sure. Or um, you know, Randall. Uh, fuck, I forget his name. Fucking the, the Tony big, Randall, not Tony Randall. <laughs> uh, the very I- iconic uh, western. But you see all these westerns, and I find them being very. Uh, I find it oh, very, very comforting, and like oh. I, I'm getting into you know, um, sure, yeah. Of now, uh, Randolph Scott. But it's also you know, it's interesting that you know this is they took an American art form, the uh, western. They, you know, they. The Italians took it, kind of made it their own, and then that ended up influencing the whole the American Western like and the, and the action genre, right? On a bigger extent, because yeah. once the westerns fall by the wayside, you have Eastwood doing successful westerns in the in the seventies. Then you get like characters like Mad Max, yeah, and exactly, Snake Plissken that are you know very much Dirty Harry, yeah. You know, you know, even before that with Dirty Harry, and you get you know. those kind of guys, or the Bronson movies. Uh, you know, his 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 Paul Kersey in the Death Wish movies in the seventies. I mean, this all comes back to here, and we come to find out as well. It should be noted that we do have novelizations for these three movies. Fistful of Dollars is a film novelization for a few dollars more. Has a novelization by Joe Millard. Good, the Magni Ugly has another a novelization also by Millard. And then it goes on. There's one called um, a novel after that called A Coffin Full of Dollars by Millard. A Dollar to Die is by Brian Cox, but then Joe comes back. Brian Cox? (laughs) (laughs) I love him. Brian Fox. (laughs) Brian Fox. I'm sorry. Don't get my F and C's wrong. Um, And then Joe's coming back for The Devil's Dollar Sign, The Million Dollar Blood Hunt, and then the last one, A Bloody... Blood for a Dirty Dollar. The dollar um, novels also provide us with some background. It's revealed that the man with no name was a ranch hand who was uh, continually persecuted by an older man named Carvel. 
C A C A R V E L L. I'm gonna make some ice cream one day. <laughs> cookie puss. Yeah. Stop calling me Cookie Puss. <laughs> Stop calling me uh, the, the, the Pudgy the Whale. <laughs> Uh, that's for people who even know what uh, Carvel is. Um, so then the trouble be- between the two of them led to a shootout, and um, the the man with no name uh, outdrew uh, Carvel, and he killed him. So that might have been so a hit point of his, being, hit of his conti- backstory. The continuing adventures with three novelizations and one, two, three, four, five. So we have a total of five extra books on top of that, which is pretty cool for having been able to have, you know, like furthering adventures like they did with the Dirty Harry saga into the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, they went and they carried on the tradition of the Dollars <laughs> trilogy. And so it's the Dollars book series. Now, unfortunately, you know, as much as Dion and I love uh, novelizations, we love ourselves some novelizations. Uh, we didn't know about them until we did the research. Yeah. So I've got them on their way, but unfortunately... Oh, you gonna, ordered them? <laughs> unfortunately, it's going to be too late to uh, talk about them. Yeah, well, you know, we, we can only try. But if we ever do one of the other ones again, or we do, like, uh, the original Django, or, I don't know, if, if we do Duck You Sucker, we'll, we'll, we'll cram them all in, read all of them, even though they have nothing to do with the Eastwood <laughs> books. Uh, you know, we'll let everybody know. So that's pretty cool. <sighs> So yeah, that's 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 uh, Eastwood. Uh, that's yeah. the only f- for a few dollars more. I don't feel like we spent a whole lot of time on the actual movie, but there was a lot to unpack on this. Oh, one. but I think there's but enough. I think it's all interesting. Yeah, I think there's um, enough. Definitely, there. if you have not seen it, it's a must. Check it out. It, it is. Uh, it is. You know, like I said, you know, along with something like Tombstone and Once Upon a Time in the West, it is one of my favorite westerns. Yeah, um, it's definitely our favorite western of the the Leone Eastwood. Uh, collaborations, yeah, and you know, I still think a little bit underappreciated because I, I it's concur. the middle child. Yeah, I've been saying that for twenty years. It's really, you know, it's looked over. It's, yeah. it's overlooked because of the other ones on either side, the pillars. It's special. Um, yeah, you know, we could have spent more time on the movie, but I think it's enough. Wetting the whistle enough to go check out, check it out. You know, I mean, there's so many great I mean, twists well, and turns. The other thing is, like, it's a pretty, you know, w- one of its strengths is it's a pretty simple plot. You know, so yeah. there's not. A whole lot to analyze, yeah. In times of there, but it's the execution, sure, of that simple plot, groundbreaking. That that's, yeah. that's that makes it effective and special. Yeah. Uh, so you know, thank you very much for the summer of sequels. We've, summer it, of sequels. It, it's, it's been a, it's been a lovely time for us having it here and doing it all. Uh, next episode is our anniversary. It's the Saturday uh, Night Movie sleepover anniversary sleepover movie sleepover extravaganza five or six year. i think it's our fifth yeah for 2014 so that would make sense the fifth so we got a big big you know usually we do we blow the blow the doors out with their anniversary which what we've been doing on other casts now the length wise what was our anniversary episode after rocketeer uh after rocketeer could it have been predator we didn't. I don't think we did that as I felt. Uh, we did those back to back. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that was last year, wasn't it? Raiders of the Lost Ark was last year. Was it? Yeah. Uh, it might have been. I don't know. Yeah, losing track. But it's it's somewhere around there. Uh, we got a big one planned, so it's going to be epic. Uh, yeah, as epic so in the traditional sure Saturday you, night movie sleepover sure sense. You use the restroom before you yeah. start. <laughs> uh, and we will make sure we do the same. And we have enough sleep. 
and we have <laughs> enough time to do everything. Um, please check us out on S- Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. Yes. Uh, CLNSmedia.com. C-L- CLNSmedia.com. You can find us there. We're partnered with them. They're very good people at that place. You could find us on iTunes. We're on Stitcher, Stitcher iHeartRadio, Radio, however you're listening Player to us FM, right now. However you're listening to us right now. Dion Baia has a book called Blood in the Streets. Available at paperback, uh, ebook, and audiobook. If you like 70s cop movies that we've been talking about, these genre pictures, gritty stuff, check it out. It's good thriller, good detective novel, cop my, novel. My books, uh, Scored Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is also available in paperback and ebook. What the? That I don't mention very often, but it is available on ebook. Uh, or you can uh, get it from me directly at scorededeath.com and follow my exploits, uh, including uh, hopefully at some point Scored to Death the podcast will come back. But in the meantime, you can listen to Cuts from the Crypt on the Damn Fine Network and, uh, and follow uh, Scored to Death at Scored to Death on social media. Yeah, go check out our books. We like to say if you like to. Please support your local podcaster. Go buy our stuff. That's a good way of supporting us. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks. We're, we're both right now writing our next stuff. So in, in a little while, we'll have another book out for, for you to check out. Um, but in the meantime, in two weeks, we'll have another movie uh, coming down the pipeline. So uh, we'll see you back here at Same Bat Time, Same Bat Channel. And remember, just take it easy. <laughs> Later. Autolite stay full batteries, Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Uh.